This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning. Today is Wednesday, February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day. And uh, hopefully you had a good one. Hopefully you did something special for your significant other, your spouse, and your children, too. (sighs) It was a good one for me. I'm joined here today by Sean O'Neill on the board, who's covering for Colin Tanner, who is covering for me on the board. So a lot of coverage. A lot of coverage today. And it's a happy, what is it, breakup day? It's the day after Valentine's Day, isn't it? The day that you don't break up on Valentine's Day. Oh, no, 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 no. So No, you do it the day after. Right. So, some people do, just to make a point. <laughs> I once dated a girl that uh, we shared the same birthday, and uh, she gave me some really awesome presents, and I uh, was about to break up with her, too. So I had to decide, <laughs> do just, I... Just give it a week. Yeah. I think I gave it a day. I Less think than I the impact. The day after. A day? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I married somebody else. It's working out great. Hey, good. And last night, we watched... Lars and the Real Girl, Ooh. which I've always thought was one of my favorite romantic dramedies. But then I watched it again, and I thought maybe that maybe it's not so much of a romance as it is just a straight drama. Isn't it a guy that takes a mannequin around all over the place? Yes. Okay. But he, you know, he's got some mental and emotional health issues, right? And uh, <laughs> it's just it's actually just a really uplifting story about how a group, a community, comes together to help somebody that they love. Uh, be healed from this cool problem that he's got. So, have you I, seen it? No, I have not. You got to check it out. I was it's, watching uh, Stranger Things last night. So, two very romantic shows on Valentine's mm-hmm, Day. Yep, mm-hmm. <sighs> I, I also watched This Is Us last night. There you go, Terry. Any romantic? Movie I, got, I think or... I watched one of the episodes of the New Twenty Four. Okay. Yes. Um, Played some uh, what, Call I was of Duty. Reading about <laughs> all this stuff that we have going on, and then my wife watched Blue Bloods or something. So I don't know. Okay, so we're all about romance in here. Yep, we love I, you. I had wives. two daughters who were babysitting last night <laughs> for oh. couples who were actually celebrating Valentine's yeah. Day. Yeah, well, good for them. That was nice of them. Uh, okay, so today is Happy Breakup Day. Can you have a happy breakup? People say yeah. you can. If, it's, yeah. if, if everyone's you know in agreement that it needs to end, <gasps> I think everyone's happy. Oh, my goodness. I do have an example of a happy breakup. You know, I went on a walk with this girl that I was going to break up with. You know the walk. And uh, huh? <laughs> the walk, you know. And do you do it at the beginning or the end of the walk? Because it's kind <laughs> of awkward know. if you do it in the middle and you're still walking. I don't walking. know. But it yeah. was at the end of the day. Uh-huh. And I said the words, uh, I think we should break up. And this light came into her eyes, and she said, I'm so happy. Mm. Oh, that was nice. Now, how am I supposed to feel about that? Relieved? I was kind of hurt. Okay, I can see that. Kind of hurt my ego a little. But we didn't get married, so she married somebody else. Anyway, all that fun stuff. Well, we're probably going to just leave that behind. I don't know that we'll revisit this topic. <laughs> but uh, let's head on over to Terry South, who's got the news of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? 
President Trump on Wednesday blasted a New York a new a new report in the New York Times that contends members of his 2016 campaign staff maintain contact with senior Russian intelligence officials leading up to the election. Following a formal denial from the Kremlin, Trump shot off a tweet storm attacking the fake news media and its blind hatred of his office. He even called the Times report a conspiracy theory. The controversy followed a full day of media firestorms surrounding Trump's former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, who was let go over pre-inauguration contact with the Russian ambassador. So for the record, this is according to Trump's tweets this morning. MSNBC and CNN are unwatchable. Fox is great. He live tweeted a portion of their show this morning. And the info in the New York Times and Washington Post report was illegally given. Okay, so now we've got CNN, we've got MSNBC. Unwatchable. And uh, the Washington Post is almost on that list, too. Right. Well, they are. They are. Okay. They really are. The Kremlin on Wednesday dismissed an overnight report from the New York Times that claimed Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign staff were in constant contact with Russian intelligence officers. It says, let's not believe anonymous information. That's from the Kremlin. So... Hmm. We're reporting on the Kremlin wasn't, now. Uh, wasn't Deep Throat anonymous? Well, yeah, but again, he's not <laughs> supposed to do that. He wasn't supposed to go talk to those reporters. Well, he, was, he was only anonymous to everybody except I guess, except Bernstein. and, and But uh, in the movie, I thought they met in the shadows and you could never see his face. Well, well yeah, but that's that's Hollywood. But that's how they... I mean, they, met, they, they met in secret. They didn't have like a, a meeting. Hollywood wouldn't do fake news. The Times story cites multiple former and current American officials who allegedly based their information on phone records as well as intercepted phone calls. Vice President Mike Pence wasn't told about the Justice Department's warning about now former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn until February 9th, a full two weeks after White House officials were notified and aide to Pence told the Washington Post Tuesday. President Trump and the White House were warned weeks ago that Flynn's conversations with the Russian ambassador about U.S. sanctions could make him susceptible to blackmail. But it wasn't until Thursday of last week, just days before Flynn's resignation on Monday, that Pence was filled in. What I would tell you is that the vice president became aware of incomplete information that he had received on February 9th, last Thursday, based on media accounts from the Washington Post. That's from a Pence spokesperson. So the vice president (sighs) read the newspaper and went... So I went on TV and did what? You know, so yeah. he, he found out about all of this through the newspaper. They weren't keeping him informed in the White House, even though they knew weeks ago. He's got to get in the loop sooner. Well, wow. you think. Yeah. You'd think that'd be the way to go. Well, no finally, wonder they don't like the Washington Post. Finally, actor, well, they keep doing this. Uh, finally, actor Harrison Ford is under investigation by the FAA after landing his private plane on a taxiway at John Wayne uh, Airport in Orange County, California, Monday, instead of on a runway as instructed. Ford mixed up. Uh, the Ford's mix-up caused him to fly right over an American Airlines passenger plane that NBC News reported was loaded with 110 passengers and a six-person crew. The plane headed for Dallas, safely departed the airport minutes after the close call. Ford can be heard asking air traffic control record, uh, in recordings, was that airliner meant to be underneath me? <laughs> it seems like something always happens when Harrison gets into his plane. Well, before he had a problem and uh, the engine went out or something, he crashed on mm-hmm. a golf course. The mm-hmm. concern there was we weren't sure if Star Wars, The uh, Force Awakens, was finished filming. It was, so we're okay there. Right. And now he's not in any more movies, obviously, unless you haven't seen the movie. Sorry, spoiler. Mm. But so no oh, real, no real concern. Oh, he could be back and you know it. No, no, he's gone forever. I'm pretty sure J.J. Abrams said he wouldn't be back. So was Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, there was Ooh. a hologram. We'll do that. 
that again. So now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought I thought I heard that he also saved the life of a boy in his helicopter. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he does all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. So stuff is always going down when he right. gets behind. There's the, also the the the, pro- in the cockpit. In this situation, yesterday. Uh, there's times where there's confusion in the air traffic control, and they give you direction, and you mm-hmm. take that direction, and it's the wrong direction. So there's an investigation to find out exactly what happened. Do they strip you of your license at some age, or do you have to— There's been some discussion that maybe Harrison needs to hang him up, hang up his wings, but— It's got to be 70 don't know. don't know mm-hmm. if there's an issue there when it comes to his judgment. Hmm. You can't really tell from the story. It seems like there's some— uh, did he get the wrong information and follow it? Did he have the right information? They told him to go the wrong place. Who knows? So we'll find out when they investigate and there's some further reporting. Well, as long as he Just like keeps... the candy lawsuit from yesterday, I will stay on top of this. Excellent. And also let us know if uh, he's still going to make Indiana Jones 5. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> That's what's really in trouble. Yeah. Really? Please, please don't. What? Just move on. I don't understand what everyone's beef was with, with I almost said episode four. Uh, um, I believe Indiana it was the, the crystal skulls and the spaceship. You know what? I still haven't seen that. It's so dumb. You haven't don't. seen it? No. Oh. Yeah, but if he can parachute using a raft yeah. and land on a mountain and still survive. See, that, that wasn't even parachuting. That was yeah, that falling. Was, that's yeah, gliding. gliding. That, that stuff's fine. It's falling with style. That's just stunts, Indiana Jones, who cares? But it's this, you know, spaceship <laughs> and crystal skulls at the end. You're like, come on. Really? Yeah. So, anyway. Was there a stick song involved? Could have been. Okay. Just go see it. It's just as unbelievable as all the others in a delightful way. In the most delightful way. <laughs> so uh, yesterday, yeah, uh, lots of stuff going on um, throughout the day as the White House is reacting to Michael Flynn being, well, he was asked to resign. Yeah. Right? So he wasn't – they said he wasn't fired, but he was told you need to resign. Because, I thought I read that Trump was taking credit for it. Like I, I fired him. Well, that happens quite a bit when the yeah. White House says one thing and then Trump says another and then they try to mesh the two and then we get more <laughs> chaos and all this. So there, here's uh, Sean Spicer had his press conference yesterday and uh, he talked about Michael Flynn stepping down clip one. We've been reviewing and evaluating this issue with respect to General Flynn on a daily basis for a few weeks trying to ascertain the truth. We got to a point not based on a legal issue, but based on a trust issue, where the level of trust between the president and General Flynn had eroded to the point where he felt he had to make a change. The president was very concerned that General Flynn had misled the vice president and others. He was also very concerned in light of sensitive subjects dealt with by that position of national security advisors like China, North Korea, and the Middle East, that the president must have complete and unwavering trust for the person in that position. Usually the the process of erosion takes a lot longer right. than just a few weeks. Well, you know, trust. <laughs> the value of trust. So they, <sighs> they reviewed it after they were told the uh, several weeks ago by the uh, Justice Department that this had happened and now he uh, General Flynn might be exposed to blackmail because of his conversations and his denials and all this stuff. So things went on for a while. Uh, Play clip two. They go on talking about this. Immediately after the Department of Justice notified the White House counsel of the situation, the White House counsel briefed the president and a small group of the senior advisors. The White House counsel reviewed and determined that that there is not an illegal issue, but rather a trust issue. Because they don't want them digging any deeper into this. No, they don't want a legal issue at all because that 
there's more issues there, right. obviously. Yeah. The um, the question is, when did President Trump know what he knew, and why did he keep him on if he knew that he lied or that he did indeed, you know, uh, have this contact with Russian intelligence? And so, if you keep him on, did he compromise anything? They said uh, Kellyanne hmm. Conway said yesterday he was still in the office with the Canadian Prime Minister last week, and he was part of all these meetings. That now has become kind of hazy. Was he actually there? There's a report that uh, when they were at Mar-a-Lago over the weekend that uh, he was kind of on the outs. He wasn't even supposed to be there. Trump was really surprised to find out that Michael Flynn had accompanied the whole group of people down there to Florida. He's like, what? He's here? What's he doing here? That's always awkward when you have a party and somebody shows up that wasn't invited. Oh, yeah. I hate that. So just lots of uh, questions still remain. And and some Republicans uh, initially were saying that there's no need for a uh, investigation because it seems to be taking care of itself. Right. This is done. We don't but need to talk about this. But that's not what the Democrats this. are saying. Democrats, obviously not. Adam uh, Schiff here, clip three, talks about that. This may be a direction coming from the Speaker, though. The Speaker was asked about this yesterday, uh, and he refused to commit to investigating Flynn's contact with the Russian ambassador. That is deeply concerning. Uh, the Speaker either needs to uh, authorize these committees, uh, in particular the House Intelligence Committee, to investigate this, or he needs to allow an independent commission to be formed and get out of the way. But uh, this is going to have to be investigated. Uh, the House cannot abdicate its responsibility. Uh, and the Democrats on the Intelligence Committee are going to be pushing to investigate exactly this. So the White House is saying it's not a legal issue, it's a trust issue. Democrats are saying... Get out um, of the way. Get out of the way. Well, some are saying <laughs> that it's like Iran-Contra, this is Watergate, you know, they're... It, we don't know yet is the problem. Right? They're trying to they're trying to inflate this into something bigger, of and the course. Republicans are trying to downplay it. Of course. Now, the the thing that Trump put out yesterday, he goes, the thing that should be really concerning is the leaks. Hmm. Right. So the White House isn't challenging the accuracy of the leaks; it's challenging the existence of the leaks. So he wants to put the blame on the Washington Post. No, the the people talking to the Post, because <sighs> they have nine sources who confirmed all this, but no names. Right. We had someone on earlier last week talking about unnamed sources and how far do you go with this. Right. Mm-hmm. This was in a – there's a publication called The Week and this columnist wrote this yesterday I was reading. He says, unelected intelligence analysts work for the president, not the other way around. Far too many Trump critics appear not to care that these intelligence agents leaked highly sensitive information to the press mostly because Trump critics are pleased with the result – Finally, they say someone took a stand to expose collusion between the Russians and a senior aide to the president. It is indeed important that someone look or took such a stand, but it matters greatly who that someone is and how they take their stand. Members of the unelected, unaccountable intelligence community are not the right someone, especially when they target a senior aide to the president by leaking anonymous, anonymously to a newspaper the content of classified phone intercepts. Uh, where the unverified, unsubstantiated information can inflict political fatal damage almost instantly. So are these leakers, are they, do they have malicious intent? Or are, is it just, you know, oh, this is just well, between you and me, but Trump, da 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 and then well, it they gets know, out. They know when you're talking to somebody from the Washington Post, it's, it's not between you and me. It's not off the record. Right. So yeah. there, there is a point where they're trying to get this out because whatever channels that it would normally go through, they don't feel it's going to work. But they should go through that. And it's it's more not necessarily re- the result, but the idea that, again, they're taking this information and using it as the guy goes on in the article to talk about political assassination. 
Mm-hmm. Right. The president has his people and these bureaucratic people in these different agencies are taking down this this person the president has confidence in to, to give him information. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's just a precedent there where you take the politics out of it. I don't know if we need that going forward. It just causes chaos for if it's a Democrat president, if it's a Republican president, whoever's there, just someone in some agency decides to take somebody out. King of the Hill is not the way they're supposed to run, right? You're not supposed to just push people off and now I have the top of the top of the hill. There's supposed to be some process and order to how you put a complaint through. Sure. And they didn't want to wait for that, so they went straight to the newspapers. Well, it sounds like Trump's got some uh, leaks to plug. Well, he says he's going to try to do that, but the problem about leaks is that people don't give up their information. So how do you find them? Mm. Unless you put out fake information and then try to trap them that way, but that, that doesn't – you have a country to run. You don't have games to play. Right. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope that they can uh, get that figured out. And uh, we'll see who our next NSA director is going to be. As I understand, Kellogg is kind of the interim NSA director. The serial guy? No, not the serial oh, guy. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, hopefully he's great. That was a horrible Kellogg joke. Yeah. Um, anyway, and hopefully this doesn't become a revolving door position in the Trump cabinet. When we return, we're going to be talking about a different type of problem that is uh, still very prevalent throughout the world. And believe it or not, it does not involve Donald Trump. When we return, we'll be speaking with Dr. Maureen Miller. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Well, as we teased before the commercial, we'll be speaking with uh, Dr. Maureen Miller. The number of people that are newly infected with HIV and or AIDS has remained relatively stable for decades. How are we fixing this problem? Well, here to speak with us today is Maureen Miller, a professor at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. And uh, she is also an entrepreneurial public health consultant. She's an infectious disease uh, epidemiologist with training in medical anthropology. And she is here with us now. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us on The Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Thank you very much for the invitation, Joe. Absolutely. I hope you had a fantastic Valentine's Day, by the way. I did. I hope you did, too. Thank you. So tell us a little bit more about this, the, the studies that you've been involved with lately and, and what you've been finding. Sure. Um, I think probably it might be a good idea to um, just give a little bit of background about HIV-AIDS. Yes, please. An issue. Yeah, thanks. It's an issue that's not really been covered in the media a lot over the last decade, decade and a half. Every December 1st, which is World AIDS Day, there's a story or two, and then it's not in the news anymore. But at the moment, today, there are 37 million people living with HIV around the world. That's a staggering number. 37 million? 37 million. Wow. Now, living today. Um, Another um, interesting um, and scary fact is that more than half of those people who are currently living with HIV are women. And most people don't know that. So it's become a a disease of women. 
It's also a disease of people who have been historically discriminated against. Um, it's very much um, a disease fueled by poverty, discrimination, and social injustice. Dr. Miller, what what types, what form does does that uh, discrimination take typically? Um, that's a great question. Um, people who have been historically discriminated discriminated against can include women, as I mentioned, men who have sex with men or gay men, people who use drugs, people who are of a specific race or religion can be marginalized in society or stigmatized against because of who they are. So my research has focused on the social factors that fuel transmission of of HIV and of other infectious diseases. Now, as you mentioned, I've combined um, infectious disease epidemiology with medical anthropology. So I'm very much interested in going moving beyond the biology. Everyone knows that HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. That's biological. That's incontrovertible. Everyone knows that. What everybody may not understand is that there are social factors, including stigma, including discrimination, that almost target people who then can be at risk of acquiring HIV. It's not an equal opportunity virus, not at all, not like the flu. Mm. And Dr. Miller, I'm just curious, how is it that uh, you became interested in this topic and, and uh, how is this uh, such a, a special topic for you personally? Um, that's, uh, I, when I went to school to um, undergraduate, the, uh, I was in an anthropology program at Columbia University. I am a Columbia lifer. Um, and my first job was at the Beth Israel Chemical Dependency Institute, and I was hired as a research assistant. And this was in the early 90s, so it was the height of the crack epidemic. It was a time before women were uh, recognized to be able to acquire HIV. Women were not allowed. They were not recognized as people who could be affected by AIDS. Um, and I worked on a research project with women who were active crack users, a community-based project. And over the course of um, the time that I worked with these women and conducted interviews in the community about their crack use, about um, exposures, about activities they did uh, to support themselves economically and to support their drug use habits, um, during that time, women were finally acknowledged to be able to acquire HIV. So our work uh, took on a whole new flavor, a new aspect, um, because now we were working in the field of HIV. Prior to that, we had been uh, drug use researchers. Now we were HIV researchers. Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier that uh, December 1st is World AIDS Day and that not too many people cover it too much other than just on December 1st. Why is it that that you think that people don't know or understand that, that HIV is still a problem? Well, you put you put the you hit the nail on the head. It's because media doesn't find it interesting anymore hmm. and because the people who are affected 
don't have a voice. So they need spokespeople like me to speak out on their behalf and to try to um, prevent um, HIV from continuing. That requires money. That requires political commitment. And political commitment, as we're seeing, is fueled by people requesting, by people demanding action on a subject. And this subject is no longer um, topical, even though in the United States, 1.2 million people are currently living with HIV. Uh, The people who are, yeah, a huge number of people. Um, So, and in the United States, one in eight of these people who have HIV infection, they don't know that they're, they don't know their status. They don't know that they're infected. Mm. So, Again, it's going, um, it's, HIV is targeting marginalized people, people who've been historically discriminated, discriminated against for one or more factors. For example, um, men who have sex with men or gay men have the highest prevalence of, of HIV, and this is particularly true among people of color. Um, African Americans and Latinos lead the list of people who are living with HIV. And in this group, uh, among those of reproductive age, which is roughly 18 to 45, HIV AIDS is a leading cause of death for African American men and women and for Latino men. This is, it shouldn't be in the top 10. Wow. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned back in the 90s, you were, you were working with women crack users. And I was trying to track Back where I was in the 90s, and, you know, that was when I was in elementary school. And my the extent of my knowledge with HIV was I just remember that Magic Johnson uh, had HIV, the HIV virus and that he uh, turned out OK. And, I, you know, I, other than that, I don't really remember learning too much in schools about HIV and AIDS. Is there anything that's happening in schools today where children or even in, at a college level where they're learning more about this topic? Fantastic question. Thank you so much for bringing that one up because I think that's a crucial element. So here you are, a a young person at the height of the epidemic in the United States, and you don't learn anything in school. Um, I live in New York City, and as we know, New York is a a fairly liberal town, Um, and The, we do have a, a, the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and the Department of School Health, they have a curriculum. And this curriculum is implemented in schools or should be implemented in schools starting in first grade. So people learn, kids learn a little bit about HIV, a little bit about sexuality, a little bit about the risk factors that, um, that people face who are at risk of HIV. And that is by no means common in the United States. Um, We also give out free condoms, and sometimes we have small-scale programs after school, but not at the school in New York, you know. So you get, you know, 20 kids here, 30 kids there. Um, A lot of it uh, is so small scale that we don't really can't, we can't tell if people are affected by it and they're often expensive programs 
So we don't know that we can scale them. We don't have the money. We don't have the interest to do that. Um, I actually tried to get in um, into the New York City schools. I threw myself at them for years trying to do HIV prevention. And then I had a moment. I, there was the light bulb went over my head. Um, what I came up with is you can't teach about HIV prevention. What you need to do is deal with some of the upstream factors that increase the risk of kids being vulnerable to um, acquiring HIV. So I developed um, a, an after-school leadership through sports program for girls to improve physical and mental health, to create strong supportive bonds among the girls, and to improve school attendance. I was in like a flash. The, um, school, um, the schools allowed me. I met with multiple schools. But what I needed to do was to test the idea to see if it worked, to see if, you know, girls improved in their self-esteem, to see if they lost weight, um, because we ap- absolutely have um, an obesity epidemic, particularly among lower-income students. Uh, so it was, you know, this whole uh, curriculum using uh, Go Girl Go, uh, a validated curriculum, uh, that addressed a lot of different topics, um, dating violence, uh, nutrition, uh, you know, sexual um, initiation, how to say no, um, all, all these kinds of, of issues. And um, so I went to the National Institutes of Health, and because it was kind of a smaller study, it was kind of a proof of concept, um, I applied for one of their smaller grants, which was not a lot of money at all to pay for, you know, the the teachers to develop it, for the um, gym teachers who would then have to implement it. Um, but still, I had all my ducks lined up, and I went to the NIH, and I was evaluated, and they told me, well, actually, you know, your sample size is two. You have two classrooms, and that's really not enough. We're not going to give you the money to do that. Oh. So even though, right. <laughs> so you know, so, and that is true of the NIH in general. It's really hard working with people, and so non-biomedical interventions are not prioritized. It's so much easier to work with a vaccine, for example. Vaccines don't talk back to you. They don't not show up for appointments. They have an outcome that you know it's going to work or it's not going to work. But people, people are complicated. And the idea of uh, making things scalable, so you, you try out in proof of concept with a small number of people and then you scale up to a larger uh, population, that is so hard to do in prevention research. Yeah. So I didn't get it. Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I can just tell stories all along. So what <laughs> I did, um, you know, I didn't get it funded. I tried a couple of times, and there was just no way they were not going to give me the money. So what I did was try to um, set up a public-private partnership, and I presented the idea to a very enlightened healthcare PR firm, and they saw the potential for corporate philanthropy and market share potential. And what they made me do was um, change the demographic. I had originally targeted young African-American women, 
and they made me target the demographic to young Latinas um, because they are uh, an attractive and growing uh, demographic to advertisers and marketers um, of products. So I did, um, we, we presented, we had so many people, we had the Girl Scouts, we had the schools, we had um, several uh, different uh, corporate philanthropy organizations, and then the, the uh, Great Recession happened. <laughs> so everybody yeah. went through. So it's tough getting this kind of stuff funded in traditional ways, and it still uh, has the problem of not being at a scale, at a level that's large enough to affect lots of different people. Mm. Dr. Miller, let's let's do this. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I wanted uh, to talk to you a little bit more about prevention research. I just want to say, though, my hat is off to you for coming up with a way to think outside the box to reach decision makers and at least to get their attention with the after-school sporting program. So my hat's off to you for that. We'll continue the discussion here with Dr. Maureen Miller when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's still in Vegas. We're speaking with Dr. Maureen Miller, who is a professor at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Uh, Dr. Miller has been involved in applied prevention research programming and policy since the 1990s and has published a number of theoretical and research articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Miller's current interests focus on understanding how complex social problems impact population health as well as on possible solutions. And uh, we've been just, we're so enlightened today. And thank you so much for rejoining us here on the program. Thank you. So uh, before the break, we I uh, wanted to talk to you a little bit more about pre- what is prevention research. There's a medical model and a social model. Could you... Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that. Brilliant. I was just thinking along those same lines myself. Um, I think really it's crucial to whenever we're discussing something that people may not be familiar with, even though they think they are, is to come up with a definition. So the definition of prevention is the action of stopping something from happening, right? Pretty straightforward. Right. However, what we've done... um, Uh, in the scientific community is we've created this artificial separation between the disease and the factors that influence transmission. And this is particularly for infectious disease, but, you know, it could be for chronic disease as well. So um, let me give you a couple examples. So our biological medical understanding of a disease Smoking causes lung cancer, right? So right. we know we know what the, the cause is, and we know what the outcome is. But the social factors that underlie the transmission of smoking, really, um, that will ultimately can ultimately lead to lung cancer and a variety of other cancers as well, uh, includes the availability of cigarettes, access to cigarettes, the acceptability of smoking. 
um, a lack of policies to prohibit smoking or policies that are unenforced. And one of the huge underlying factors in the smoking story is money. uh, Tobacco companies spend a lot of money on advertising and lobbying, and the advertisements link desirable personal characteristics to smoking. It was sexy. It was manly. It was independent. Now, as a prevention researcher who's trying to go beyond the medical model, that's not a simple message. You know, eventually, it took 50 years to um, to decrease smoking in the United States, and I think it's a huge prevention success story. But it was, it's a David and Goliath story as well, because there were some scientists who were certain, who had some evidence that said, you know, smoking causes lung cancer. We should really stop people from smoking, and it was a huge fight. Um, but as people got sicker and sicker. Um, the uh, tobacco companies had a harder time hiding the truth. Mm. Um, so, so that is um, a prevention story that targets the social factors. Okay. Now, what, what types of limitations are there in, in, in terms of prevention research? Um, <clears throat> money, big one, and political commitment. It is so much easier to... Um, support publicly a reactive response and to spend money on that, look at Zika, look at Ebola, both infectious diseases that threatened the United States and citizens here in this country. Boom, we had such a quick response. That was once the disease was there and was actually threatening. The um, the the challenge, I think a major challenge uh, to prevention is that success looks like the status quo. Nobody jumps up and down and says, wow, I didn't get that disease because of prevention activities. Nobody says that because nobody thinks they're going to be the one to get the disease. So it's a really hard sell. And, you know, people, the first thing to get cut is prevention. Um, We, uh, TB represents a great story. Um, We had People believed in the 1970s in the United States that we had completely gotten rid of tuberculosis in the United States. So they cut back on all the screening centers. They cut back on all of the public health uh, prevention activities. And then within 10 years, we had a massive TB epidemic. So it's political will. Um, because you're throwing these dollars and it looks like you're throwing them away because nothing is happening. And people are conditioned to respond to an event. Now, you mentioned funding for this. Where Where is the funding coming from for these prevention efforts and these intervention mechanisms? As I understand, you know, you, you brought up the example of the tobacco industry. Aren't they putting some dollars into some of these prevention programs too? I don't know if it's a sign of goodwill or who is who is funding these efforts? Uh, you, that's a complicated story because um, corporate philanthropy uh, definitely contributes to different initiatives in the United States. But at the same time, sales of cigarettes have gone global. So a lot of these companies now sell in Africa, in Asia, 
And these, the, these continents are now faced with the same kind of lung cancer and variety of cancers that we faced over the last 50 years. So it is complex. And it's generally not corporations that, um, that fund this kind of prevention research. They'd rather um, fund something that feels more tangible. Again, it's, it's the idea of perception. So right now in, in history, research funding is undergoing a, a seismic shift, and the desk is far from settled. We still don't have a new model. We have the traditional sources, the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control, and I just want to point out, it's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The P is missing. They call it the CDC. Even, even in, in our, um, in our health, national health institutes, um, we don't fully acknowledge prevention. So that funding's been stable or cut back, and priorities are often political. So depending on which government is in, um, that depends on the research topics that are actually funded. Right. So, and another issue that goes into this is that a lot of schools of medicine and of public health saw this uh, this research funding as kind of a cash cow. So now a lot of different um, institutes have been developed over the last 20, 30 years, and everybody's applying for the same pot of funding. So when I first started, 30% of uh, grant proposals that were submitted were funded for research. That number is now down to around 10%. So all different kinds of interesting uh, research is not being conducted because it's not there's no money to fund it through government sources. And it's pretty competitive, as you just mentioned. So what what's the future of prevention research? Um, the future of prevention research, um, I think um, one of the new models that we're going to find um, to funding prevention um, is one in which technology is going to play a huge role. It's the only way to get scale to develop a, pro- a prevention program at scale and to implement it at scale. Um, so there's also going to have to be um, a corporate element. Um, it, these these technology-mediated me- uh, interventions, they need to be funded by somebody. So somebody's got to think them up, and somebody's got to fund them, and somebody's got to use them. So we really, as scientists, we need to acknowledge that there's a need for both public and private benefit. Corporations are not going to do this out of the goodness of their heart, particularly if it starts you know, costing a lot of money. They want some benefit on it. Um, I think technology is going to be able to control some of the issues of conflict of interest that corporations could conceivably have. Right now, we have um, the click on advertisement model, and I think that's probably how things are going to start. Um, we just need to figure out how to engage the target population in a way that um, they start listening to the prevention messages. And again, I think um, because um, all kinds of negative health consequences and outcomes uh, happen 
in the context of discrimination, of stigma, um, for example, places where in the United States where there's a high number of people living with HIV, there's also a lot of gun violence. There's also a lot of breast cancer. Um, there's also a, a shorter life expectancy. All of these things tend to cluster. So we traditionally treat um, diseases in silos. We address one thing at a time. And really, people are affected by lots of different things. And we're asking them to prioritize one prevention topic over everything else in their lives. And I don't think that's realistic. And the good news is that once we broaden the topic to other social factors that people are engaged with, that they are interested in, people start paying attention and it becomes acceptable. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the program today, and thank you for shedding more light on this important topic and, and for your research that, you've, that you're doing. Professor Miller is a professor at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University and an entrepreneurial public health consultant, and she's been speaking to us about AIDS and HIV and uh, how this is still a problem. And there's a lot that we can do to become more educated and and help support this important issue. So, again, we thank you, Dr. Miller, for being on the program. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our wonderful producer, McKenna Baus. And uh, we're going to continue the discussion when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm joined here today by Sean O'Neill on the board. And right to my right is McKenna Baus, who has an interesting topic for us today. We're going to be talking about how your personality changes when you move from one house to another. Now, I must have always had the same personality because until I was 20 years old, I lived in the same house. Never moved. Yeah, so... I don't know if it's just houses that's going to make the biggest difference, but a lot of it happens, especially when we start crossing state lines and when we move to other countries, things like that. But, I mean, it can happen within a particular state if a city, you know, has a really big culture difference than another. I got to tell you, my personality changes whenever I cross into the Oregon uh, state and I can't pump my own gas. It is it's a, kind of annoying it, to me. A, it messes with my head every time I do. Well, when you move into a haunted house, it just that really changes your personality. It just <laughs> possession would yeah, do that to a person. Does. You'll know what my honest girly scream sounds like. I'm looking forward to hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what did you find out about this? Yeah, so there's a lot of this can sort of be assumed when you look at the different stereotypes that different places in the U.S., for example, have. Um, People in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic are a lot more anxious in their relationships and they tend to be a little more neurotic than people on the West Coast. Hmm. Um, though people on the just sort of the coasts in general tend to be a lot more um, open to new experiences and can be a bit more of risk takers in that regard. Um, according to this article, it actually said that Utah um, has one of the least anxious anxious and most relationship-inclined populaces in the country. I don't know if I agree with that particular assessment, (laughs) at least here on campus. There's a lot of anxiety about that. (laughs) Um, 
But just the idea that people tend to be a lot more agreeable when they are from the Midwest, the Southeast, and then they also threw Utah in there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's all these different cultures that are in these different places, but there's these theories about why that happens and those theories are what influence in turn whether or not you're going to pick up some of those traits when you move there. Are they like conspiracy theories or is there there some data behind the theories? Yeah. So these are researched scientific theories. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the first we don't, ones – We don't get into conspiracy theories here on the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, but those are so fun. <laughs> um, one of the first theories is the idea of a migration pattern that an, a place gets this sort of – name for itself, this reputation, and people who are already like that move there because, oh, there's people like me who are there. Mm, okay. Uh, you know, the pe- I've, oh, I've always dreamed of living in California. I've wanna... always dreamed of living in New York, that yeah, kind of thing. I want to join the club. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so in that case, moving might to a place, you might just be have traits brought out that you already have and they just get ampli- like amplifi- amplified? Mm-hmm. Amplified. Is that why everyone retires in Florida? Yes. Hmm. That and be. That and uh, buffets. Yes. Early bird buffets. <laughs> I do love a good buffet. Um, some of the other theories that are out there have to do with um, ecology. Places um, that have higher rates of infectious disease tend to have less extroverted populations. And part of that comes down to the idea that if you're going and shaking hands with everybody and having a lot of contact with a lot of people, you're more likely to get sick. And so there's sort of this natural selection thing. And that means even weather in those kind of places can really quickly change your personality. Wow. Yeah. You know, they always say that, uh, you know, places like Seattle where it's so gloomy all the time because of the weather – that uh, people are more depressed. Although I lived there for five years and I thought it was delightful. I like rain. The, I think the, the mentality there is you don't tell people that Seattle is nice because you don't want other people moving there. It's the Greenland-Iceland thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. it. Okay. Well, we – what an interesting topic. So you don't, you don't feel like the research here in Utah is that accurate though? Yeah, I think there's definitely more anxiety here than yeah, they give Yeah, but you got a micro for. community here on campus, I think. Perhaps. <laughs> With a lot of youth that are trying to get married and <laughs> some are successful, some are. A lot of anxious people. <laughs> That's true. So if you, uh, if you want to retire, go to Florida. If you don't want to pump your own gas, go to Oregon. Sounds about right. McKenna, thank you once again. You brought us an interesting topic, and we'll continue talking about interesting topics when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live more interesting lives. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, everyone. It is February 15th. And uh, according to Sean O'Neill, who's running the board right now, it is happy breakup day, which I didn't know that. The day after Valentine's Day. It's also the day that uh, retail stores will put all of their Valentine's Day candies on 
on a uh, discount. So go and get some. Yeah, it's like getting cheap Christmas wrapping paper the day after Christmas. I just, I I'll, I go get it, I put it away in the closet, and every time we go to the movies, we just take some along. And we never run out of candy for the movies. <laughs> anyway, just giving you some wonderful ideas here on the show. Uh, last hour, we spoke with uh, Professor Maureen Miller, who talked to us about AIDS and HIV and how it's still very much a problem today. 32 million people afflicted with that. Just huge numbers. And, you know, as a kid, I knew nothing about it except Magic Johnson had it and uh, he turned out okay. That's the extent of my knowledge pretty much when I was growing up. And uh, coming up in just a bit here, we'll have another important topic. It's from an interview that uh, Dr. Matt himself conducted a while back, seeing our veterans as leaders and community assets. So that's what we like to do here on the show is just talk about the important topics and uh, help you keep an open mind and, and think of ways that you can make a difference and just be more informed overall. We've also got Terry South here, who's the only one not covering for anybody. It's covering for himself. Yeah, I'm just I'm just doing my job. Here. Just doing my job. <laughs> Believe me, he's covering something up. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the job is to make it look like we didn't, right? So yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, President Trump. <laughs> Speaking of cover-ups, I'm sure uh, something. What are, you, what, are you, what are you saying? Nothing. Oh. I you, just assumed. Something. I, I just assumed say. if if we're going to be talking politics here in a second, that something involving a cover-up would be mentioned. Well, but know, uh, depends on the day. Let's turn it over to Terry South, see what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? House Oversight Committee Chairman Jason Chaffetz requested more information Tuesday from the White House about the handling of sensitive information at Mar-a-Lago over the weekend. The request follows a CNN report on Monday that suggested that President Trump discussed how to respond to a North Korean ballistic missile launch with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in the middle of his private club's dining area. As Mar-a-Lago's wealthy members looked on from their tables and with a keyboard player crooning in the background, Trump and Abe, their evening meal quickly morphed into a strategy session. The decision-making on full decision-making on full view for fellow diners who surrounded them to describe it in detail to CNN. The network reported in his press briefing Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer dismissed such reports. Just to be clear, the president wasn't brief. He was briefed before dinner. Chaffetz's letter refers also to the resort's public dining area, citing accounts and photos from other diners in the area that seemed to indicate communications about North Korean missile launch occurred in the presence of other guests. If you've seen these photos, there's candlelight, white linen. They move all the, uh, what do they say, the, the lettuce wedge blue cheese salad just arrived as they moved all the dishes out of the way, and it looked like a strategy session was happening by cell phone light. They turn on the lights on their cell phone to look at doc- documents because ah. it's dark in this room. Now, they could have just been reading news accounts or reports and nothing sensitive there, but there is this idea, like, if you're going to sit there and discuss with a foreign leader on what your response is, why not do it in a different place instead of in the view of all these people who posted it on Facebook and Instagram? Go ahead. I'm sure he was asking more about what was for dinner and what's on the menu right there. They were looking at menus, I'm sure, I think with, they were, their, with their cell phone They were lights. looking at the Yelp reviews. They're, they're looking at what's in the dishes so because I'm sure somebody had an allergy or something. Could have been, could have been. But, the problem is is the, the commentary from people surrounding 
this group of government leaders with phones just taking pictures. And one of them, like, Trump actually looks straight into the guy's camera and smiles as everyone else is moving around behind him. It just seems like that, if you're going to have a discussion uh, and respond in this way, go to a different place. They actually had the press conference with the Prime Minister of Japan in an adjacent room where, like, just down the hallway from a wedding reception that was going on. So as the reporter said they watched this, you could hear the music from the reception just flowing down the hallway as they were talking about North Korea. So It sounds like it was place. a romantic setting, though. Candlelight, yeah. there was a crooner there, in the background. Both of the uh, leaders' wives were sitting across the table from them as this was going on. So there's well, some What was questions. Valentine's Day? Come on! Was it Michael Buble? Was he the crooner? No, just some guy on a keyboard. <laughs> so there's questions on... Time and place, where are they doing these things? What's the process when you're at this resort right. surrounded by people when a national security issue comes up? Well, at least he smiled for the camera. So we'll see what happens. On Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer backed up President Trump's decision to accept the resignation of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, saying the move, ooh, dramatic, saying the move was <laughs> not an issue of law, it was an issue of trust. Spicer uh, took questions about why it took three weeks to oust Flynn after the president became aware that Flynn misled Vice President Mike Pence about discussing the possible lifting of sanctions with the Russian ambassadors, saying the White House had conducted an exhaustive review. The press secretary additionally blamed former President Obama's Department of Justice holdovers for not informing the White House quickly enough about Flynn. Mm-hmm. So it's their fault. <sighs> Democrats don't believe what he said. Republicans, yeah, they think everything's okay. Well, once they so don't we'll have see the, how this works. Once they're out of office, you can feel free to throw them under the bus. There's some Republicans in the middle that are uh, suspect, but they are keeping quiet. Aha! Uh-huh. But that type of stuff comes back to haunt you in other areas. So they're trying to see how this all plays out. Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from Israel meets President Trump today in their first face-to-face encounter since Mr. Trump's uh, taking of office. The turmoil in the White House could complicate what many had expected would be a triumphant reception of the Israeli leader. The resignation of Mr. Trump's national security advisor, uh, Mr. Flynn, deprives Mr. Netanyahu of his strongest ally inside the White House for raising pressure on Iran and the emergence of Jared Kushner, Mr. Trump's son-in-law, as an aspiring Middle East peacemaker has increased the president's appetite for a peace initiative between the Israelis and the Palestinians, something Mr. Netanyahu was not especially eager to discuss. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. They're going to have a press conference. There will be four questions. Two hey. from Israeli media, two from U.S. media. We'll see who gets asked the so questions. So we're up from two questions to four questions. There so might have he- been four in the last one, but there was two to okay. control. That's because there's two guests. We are right. heading in the right direction. Yeah, so we'll see. Uh, they're saying the visit is likely to be more, be more symbolic than substantive. Right, so they're just going to be like shaking hands here. Welcome so, to the— so, so a Trump meeting with with no substance? Is that what you're saying? I'm just saying that's what okay. they— That doesn't sound like it. Uh, Thieves targeted a London warehouse temporarily holding some of the world's rarest books. They cut through the skylights, rappelled down, and made off with more than $3 million in books. In total, a trio nabbed more than 160 books. Uh, They said the cameras in the building showed the thieves ignoring everything in the warehouse, but four specific containers, the contents of which they had a list and they were checking it off as they were, oh, here, we'll take this book, and they'll take this one here. Uh, $1.6 million was stolen in books in the heist. 
I don't know. One of the book dealers said that, that she personally lost $1.6 in the heist because she had some expensive books in there. Police said that it took more than three hours for them to complete the heist. So they not only had a list, they really weren't concerned with getting caught. They knew what they were doing. Wow. So they, there's comparisons to like Ocean's Eleven. And inside so, Job. Well, they, inside they, made job a, they made a movie about this. It was called The Book Thief. The Book Thief. Among the Books Stolen. A book published in 1566 where Copernicus first theorized that the sun, not the earth, is the center of our solar uh-huh. system. I hope they were wearing gloves for these books. Hope so. Just treat them right, guys. 1506 edition of Dante's Divine Comedy and a book written by Sir Isaac Newton. Wow. So now the question I have for the two of you is what book would you steal? I would have taken that Dante one. Yeah, I would have just gone to Amazon and just forgot, to just forget the whole. You would have gotten the ebook thief. version. Yeah, it's just easier that way. Those, I mean, they most broke, of those are free too. They broke through a skylight, rappelled down. They had to know, you know, was security around. Well, they had to break the skylight so that the the delivery drone could get out. Right? Yeah, it's just really more effort there than necessary. Where are you going to sell these books? Sounds sounds like the nerdiest heist ever. Yeah. Well, yeah. Unless, you know, they they wanted these for money instead of reading, mm. which it sounds like. I don't really? Know. Maybe? I don't, I don't know. Mm. Original copies of 1566 books you probably don't read because mm. opening them would destroy exactly. them Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You'd hear like these little shrieks. It's like ah, the words dying on the page. Mm-hmm. No, that would be a librarian somewhere going nuts. Like, what or, yeah, you do some, yeah. some bibliophile <laughs> going, yeah. what are you doing? Oh, my goodness. Well... Uh, speaking of other illegal activities, and this is really interesting, and uh, after this, I want to I get your input on this, you guys. Two New Brunswick men have been arrested after allegedly going through a McDonald's drive through on a couch. Oh, they were on the couch? I, I've, heard, I've heard this story. I didn't realize they were on the couch. Well, yes. there were people on the couch. Okay. The couch was being towed. Right. I've heard on of- a trailer. Yes. I've heard of couch potatoes who refuse to move from the couch while they're watching TV. Mm-hmm. But these are men who refuse to move from the couch while going through the drive through Police say an officer spotted the couch being towed behind an ATV at 3.19 a.m. Uh, a sp- oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Okay. And, and 3.19 yeah. a.m., which mm-hmm. means there's probably something else involved in this story. Right. A spokesperson says the driver of the four-wheeler took off after the officer turned on the lights atop his cruiser, standing or stranding the two intoxicated men outside oh, the really? restaurant. Oh, really? They were intoxicated? Um, you know, three in the morning, towing a couch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even know there were McDonald's restaurants that were open at three in the morning. I've got one right by my yeah. house. Really? Yes. Oh, nice. oh, I need to come visit you. Uh, she says the driver raced through the parking lot across the highway and onto the frozen Miramachi River, still towing the couch through much of his escape. Oh, I would have cut my losses and ran there. Yeah. <laughs> Two local men aged uh, 28 and 39 will face yet-to-be-determined charges. Police say it is illegal to tow a couch through a drive through but the two men were wearing helmets. What's wrong well, with okay. that? Safety counts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yes. I've tried to go through a drive-thru before, uh, not intoxicated, but on a bicycle, <laughs> and they oh, would they not, no, they, they wouldn't won't. do it. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Have you, have either of you ever tried to do that or go up through the drive-thru on foot? I, I've, we used, you used to be able to go through the drive-thru on foot. They had no problem with it. And then yeah. you know the lawyers got involved. So what is it? Are they afraid that you're going to be more easily gonna, rip them off? No, they're going to. They're afraid you're going to get hit by a car ah. on their property, and there's a liability involved. 
Mm. Just walk in. I mean, you're. I know. That's exactly. Yeah. Well, and they no, now used, they have to be afraid of people getting hit by mm-hmm. a couch. Well, there used to be people who would walk in in formation as if they were in a car okay. through the drive-through. Right. Yeah. To be you know as a joke. Wow. I can ne- neither confirm nor deny that I might have been. In so, that formation, so, so he did it. So yeah, if it was no, McDonald's, I, I, no, I, I might I might stay on a couch, you know, because if it was something like In and Out Burger, then I'd probably dress up and well, go inside and yeah. But I don't think it was towing the couch that was the problem. It was people riding on the couch that was yeah, being towed. It's not a safe vehicle, exactly. Right, there were no seatbelts on the couch. They, I bet they may oh. have they may have laws with uh, driving or riding in the back of a pickup truck while it's moving. There's yep. some states that have yeah. don't you laws, remember so. doing that as a kid with yes, no seatbelts yeah. in the back of a truck? Sure. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything fun these days. Well, you know, they said pile in, and uh, we all did. <laughs> Once someone flies out of the back of a truck, then they make a law. Then it's not fun mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We also used to be able, on long trips, my dad would load up the back of the van with all of the luggage, and then he would layer it with blankets. And this is before we had TVs in our car, cell phones. We would just lay down and sleep the entire way. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. Oh, we were in the back of my of my parents' pickup truck. It had a shell over the back, but we had a four inch foam pad in the back of the thing and a piece of carpet over it. And that's where my sister and I rode for like two weeks mm-hmm. with the trailer behind the truck. And now, speaking of foam, styrofoam, you have to uh, you have to sit in a car seat basically until you're mm-hmm. twenty years old. Almost, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I keep asking, does my kids still have to sit in a car seat? Yep. 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 And not only that, but they expire. That and they you have do. to get a new one every couple of years. Well, you do. I mean, you, you do have to switch them around. You have to go from re- reverse sitting to forward sitting. Right. Yeah. And then you go for the booster instead of the actual car seat. So. Well, Terry, before we uh, get to this interview here, anything else that's interesting <laughs> that we want to talk about? Um, let me see here. Did you see the the uh, Texas man's obituary that blasted him as possessing no redeeming qualities? Ouch. <laughs> what a nice obituary. Who wrote it? His family. That's oh, oh man. Was this J.R. Ewing? No, it was Leslie Ray Popeye Charping. Okay, Popeye. It said, who, who Le- shot Leslie Ray Popeye?" It said in the in the uh, the obituary, Leslie's remains will be cremated and kept in the barn until Ray until Ray the family donkey's wood shavings run out. Oh, this is just getting more interesting oh. by the second. It seems the viral viral obituaries are all the rage these days, with writers making sure the deceased are remembered on their way out the door for. All the things they did they didn't like, apparently. Wow. Uh, Charping, geez. he died on January 30th, 2017, after a fight with cancer at age 74. This was according to the obituary. 29 years longer than expected and much longer than he deserved. He leaves, behind, he leaves behind two relieved children, um, a, the, a son and daughter, along with six grandchildren, countless other victims, including an ex-wife, relatives, friends, neighbors, doctors, nurses, random, random strangers. Uh, it goes on. It goes, at a young age, he... Leslie uh, quickly became a model example of bad parenting combined with mental illness and a complete commitment to drinking and all other sort of bad activities. Complete commitment. Yeah. He. Um, wow. Yeah. It just keeps going. Like, why would you go through the effort unless there's, I guess, a lot of oh, emo- emotion oh, yeah. there, right? Yeah. Leslie's hobbies include being abusive to his family, expediting trips to heaven <laughs> for the beloved family pets. It must have been cathartic for somebody. Says he was less skilled than the previously mentioned 
animals that are the family pets and stuff. Leslie's life served no other obvious purpose. He did not contribute to society or serve his community and possessed no redeeming qualities besides quick-witted sarcasm, which was amusing and during his sober days. See, there's a redeeming quality, quick-witted sarcasm. And then it says uh, his passing will be missed only for what he never did, being a loving husband, father, and good friend. No services will be held. There will be no prayers for Mm. eternal peace and no apologies to the family he tortured. Leslie's remains, as it said with the donkey in the barn line, Leslie's passing proves that evil does in fact die and hopefully marks a time of healing and safety for all. Oh, Zing. man. Wow. See, now, I mean, why but, not just save the money? Because obituaries cost <laughs> bucks. They do. Why well, would you? Man. Now the family knows that they, uh, now everyone knows that they didn't approve of this guy and the family. So I don't know. So now we know. Just, I found it cutting. And <laughs> Now we know why we have the rhetorical question, what do you want people to say about you when you pass away? Mm-hmm. So. Be well, I don't nice. think that was it. I don't think Leslie no. was thinking that was going to be it. And, of course, this was posted <sighs> to the uh, what the funeral home's website. Of course. That's where they do these things nowadays. And it's crashing their website. So they can't keep the website <laughs> up because people want to see the real obituary. Well, this is why on the show we encourage you to be kind, to do a good turn daily. It's also part of the Boy Scout anthem. And... Uh, just think about how your actions impact other people because heaven knows you do not want that in your obituary in your obituary Sean you probably don't either oh no all right well when we return as promised we're going to be uh, revisiting an interview that Matt Townsend conducted about seeing our veterans as leaders and community assets we'll be right back this is the Matt Townsend show Welcome back, everybody. Um, do you not feel the power of the leadership of these people that have given their lives, their time, their talents to protect us? Then they come home and we reintegrate them back into the community, but we don't necessarily utilize those their skills, their great talent, their great leadership. And Got Your Six is an organization that does. Bill Roush is joining us. Bill is the new director of this campaign. He joins us now live from Virginia. He was a major and uh, spent 17 months in Iraq serving under Generals Casey and Petraeus um, while assigned to the Information Operations Task Force. Uh, Bill Roush, uh, thank you for being here with us today. Matt, thank you for having us, and, and thanks for uh, focusing on this issue. It's really critical for you, us. You bet, and thank you for your service and and for really looking after these most essential and important people of our of our community the veterans talk to me about how gotyour6.org was created where did it where did it come from and and why is it so important to to the rest of us in the united states well we were established in in may of 2012 and we were established as a result of the number of service members that are exiting the military and reentering civilian life, as you mentioned earlier. In fact, uh, each year, a quarter, quarter million service members leave the military. Yeah. They go back into small towns and big cities across the country. And we were established out of the need to really empower our veterans who go back to the communities in order to strengthen the very communities that they came from. And, you know, part of the challenge that, that we face is that uh, based off of the research uh, that we've done and, and others have conducted, you know, there's a risk that 
the American people view veterans as uh, broken, as victims, mm. as uh, struggling with PTS and other issues, when in fact, uh, as you mentioned at the onset, you know, veterans are tremendous leaders. We're oh, yeah. team builders. We're problem solvers. We're also neighbors and parents, sons and daughters. And so it's, it's an effort. It's a campaign that's, that's driven by research and results to, again, empower those veterans to strengthen the communities across the country. And we it just it's a it seems crazy for me. We have people that have led thousands of people into combat or have been in charge of, you know, a ship or a battalion or or even just a team, a squadron. And I think we don't even we don't even necessarily equate that to the world. You know, like we're so proud of somebody being a manager, but somebody that's led a team into battle. Are you kidding? Or or led a, a service crew that's serviced uh, airplanes on the ground. I mean, there's some. It's it's just as good as any other experience we're getting back home. Well, it is, and, and you know, you, you bring up an interesting point because I know, speaking from personal experience, when I left the military, I struggled a little bit to understand how my experiences and skill sets in combat, but also outside of combat, translated mm. into the civilian workforce. And so that's why it's critical that we empower. Our veterans, you know, we're proud to have 30 coalition members who are all across the United States who have hundreds of thousands of members doing phenomenal work to truly empower veterans and give them an opportunity to lead again uh, within a lot of the nonprofit partnerships uh, and the federal government, but also in small business leaders. I mean, one, one of the really exciting areas that, that we see are veterans as entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, given the the need to to lead and to be calm under pressure, uh, again in combat or out of combat, we found that veterans are great at getting the job done and starting small businesses. I uh, there's a small business in my local uh, hometown of Alexandria, Virginia, which is a, a bath and body shop, uh, and it's amazing. The 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 founder Fred Wellman, who's an Iraq War veteran. Um, you know, didn't go to business school. He doesn't come from a business family, but, you know, he wanted to start a business. He wanted to have an impact on the community. And so those are the types of examples that we get excited about. And frankly, those are the types of things we try to replicate through our empowerment campaigns to, again, strengthen the communities across the country. And is it, I, I guess you're trying to educate the rest of us in, in how to see the veterans, I think, differently. I mean, it's almost maybe we have a lot of sympathy for them because we, we, hear, we like you said, we tend to hear this, the traumatic stories and the PTS issues, but uh, what you're trying to teach us is these are these are they're not just broken people. I mean, some have been hurt and injured, but these are strong, capable, able people, and we need to, I guess, offer more jobs. I, I guess integrate them more. What what can we do as just the general population? to better integrate our veterans and and empower them? Well, I think that's the key question. And, you know, a couple of thoughts. First and foremost, to your point, um, you know, the idea that uh, we're all struggling with mental health issues, that suicide's an epidemic that's only impacting our community, that we're all unemployed or homeless, those, those are narratives that we're trying to combat because, frankly, they're not true. I mean, based off the research, they're just not true. For example, the veteran unemployment rate right now is below the national average of unemployment. And frankly, that's a direct result of, of business and industry and, and government and others stepping up over the last five years and pushing to hire veterans, right? Mm. And so that's an exciting, uh, you know, uh, event. And, and now we're looking to say, okay, now we have veterans employed, but how do we get them in the right careers so they can, they can truly, again, 
uh, be empowered and, and lead at the local, state, and national level. So that's that's one piece of it. But more broadly, you know, we one of our programs that, that I really enjoy is called the I Am Campaign, and it focuses on veterans who are many things in addition to a veteran, right? We're registered voters, we're fathers, yeah. we're daughters, we're all of those things. And so when you think about some of the trauma that we've experienced, perhaps in war or out, outside of war, it's not too dissimilar from, you know, folks, again, in small towns and big cities across the country who also have struggled, whether they've lost loved ones, they're, they're, they're struggling through transition. And so, again, we're just trying to emphasize that we're just like everyone else in the country. And you know what? It's not a surprise that we're like everybody else, Matt, because mm-hmm. we came from the very small towns and the big cities that we're transitioning back to. So to your question, what can folks do? I think first and foremost, folks can just get to know a vet. You know, say hello, introduce yourself. There aren't any wrong questions. There aren't any gaffes. Just build a genuine relationship with your neighbors. And, you know, we're not bad neighbors. In fact, we're pretty good ones. And, you know, so I think that's, that's the first thing. The second thing, obviously, you know, they can visit our website, uh, Got Your Six. Org. I mean, it's a great resource for folks to look at our partners. We have 30 nonprofit partners who are the best in the industry. And then if folks are so compelled, go to our website, backslash donate, and, you know, invest in veterans. I mean, we're not a charity. We're an investment. And, you know, that's really, really critical as we move forward and, and sort of cycle down in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I guess, too, I mean, integrate with local veterans organizations to get people to come apply for jobs at your at your company. I mean, look for the veteran and make it a, a concerted effort to put the veteran at least in the line in your wherever you can. No, absolutely. In fact, you know, I I think industry doesn't get enough credit for stepping up and really focusing on hiring efforts across the country, whether it's the chamber hiring our heroes, whether it's the tech sector, you name it. And again, small towns with, with small startup businesses as well. I've, I've traveled the country and met all kinds of business owners who've made real efforts to hire veterans. One of the biggest challenges, Matt, is finding those veterans, which mm. is why it's a community-based approach. Because, you know, if we're not connected, we're not going to get a job. If we're not connected, we may not get that mental health service that we need. It's, it's the, same, the same challenges that impact all of us as a country impact veterans. And I think, you know, it's also important to note the opportunity that you mentioned at the onset of veterans to, to come back and serve as leaders, team builders, and problem solvers. I mean, you know, if you look up, look across the country at the decline in community and, the, and how disengaged many communities have been over the last few decades, you know, veterans, we offer a unique opportunity to step up and lead a resurgence, if you will, of increased community, whether it's serving on the school board, whether it's going to vote and getting registered to vote. You know, this is a big presidential year, like you were talking earlier. I mean, all of those things are made possible by an increase in community. And, you know, we want to step up and and help, you know, help that resurgence of community across the country. Yeah. We're speaking again with Bill Rausch, um, Major Bill Rausch. Uh, He's spent 17 months in Iraq serving for us and uh, is now... um, Taking on this this website, gotyour6.org, it's an entire movement. It's not just a website. But he's got the back of the veterans, and he's uh, talking to us today about how we, just as the local general public, how we can make sure we've got the back uh, backs of our veterans as well. We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion empowering the veteran and really changing our communities while we're doing it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 
from a longest yard. Oh, they feel the feet get cold. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, honoring veterans, not even Veterans Day, and we're honoring the veterans. Um, more importantly, we all uh, may be wasting one of the greatest resources we have in this country. We've trained thousands, I guess millions of people through our military and armed services, and yet they come home, and a lot of times they just get forgotten. And not just not, just not celebrated, but also not utilized, not not utilizing their great gifts, their great talents. I was uh, talking earlier about a friend of mine that flies Apache helicopters and was a seriously major hero in the Iraq war and came home and didn't have a an Apache anymore. And, you know, what do you do then? How do you integrate now? Um, anyway, interesting thing. It changed his life financially. He struggled and and uh, he's still, I think, struggling to this day. Uh, joining us is Bill Roush from GotYour6.org. It's, uh, it's a program that's designed to make sure that we're protecting, watching out for, empowering, and, and better utilizing our great veterans um, and understanding what they're going through, but also empowering them to be leaders here at home. Uh, Mr. Roush, again, thank you for your service and thanks for joining us again. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. What uh, when when you look at this? I mean, you have some really powerful videos and media. You have um, a lot of Hollywood people that are backing some of these videos. So on our Twitter feed, we'll have some of the great videos about Got Your Six. It seems like you're getting a lot of movement. And is is are you using these these videos and these um, the the media platform to kind of promote this? Is that your is that your goal? Well, it's certainly uh, one of the key approaches we're taking. In fact, uh, you know, we mentioned the coalition earlier. I mentioned the coalition of 30 nonprofit partners right. who are doing phenomenal work across the country. But, you know, we did a study a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a Changing Perceptions of American Veterans study. And it was part of a cultural campaign that uh, allowed us to realize that despite the amazing work of many of our nonprofit partners across the country at the grassroots level, there was still a need to change public perception uh, at a grass top level, if you will, a national level. Mm. And so that's why we've established strong working relationships with the entertainment industry as an effort to truly promote this cultural change that we believe is necessary based off of this research to change public's perception of veterans. To your point earlier, uh, we're not charities, we're, our, we're investments. We're, you know, we're real people, we're just like you, and you know, we're not broken. We're, right. we're here to serve, and, and transition can be difficult, but it can be difficult for anyone, whether you're in the military or not. And so that's why we leverage uh, the entertainment partners that we've built and developed, as a cr- frankly, as a critical component to get the message out there. I mean, we want to reach every household in America, whether it's on TV, whether it's on radio through programs like this, or whether through its, uh, you know, our nonprofit partners who are literally out there on the street right now doing phenomenal work for for the entire country. Hmm. One of the things I know you focus on too, you call the six pillars. Uh, what are the six pillars that you, that you're you're educating us around, and and how do you use these pillars? Well, we we use the pillars a few different ways. I mean, first and foremost, as it relates to the six pillars, we you know we looked across the industry and we said, hey, what's needed? Um, what do we really need to focus on? 
And what we realized, you mentioned one of them earlier, employment. Uh, you know, several years ago, we had a crisis in terms of veterans' employment. And so we identified that as one of our six pillars to focus on and to galvanize the American public through our, again, our entertainment partners, but also our nonprofit partners to address those challenges. I mean, in short, the, the six pillars, uh, employment, jobs, as I mentioned, education, you know, the new GI Bill has really transformed post-9-11 veterans going back to school in a way that's was never thought possible, hmm. health, housing, uh, family, and then leadership being the, the sixth pillar, which we, we talk about constantly, you know, uh, regardless of whether you're an 18 or 19-year-old young man or woman who joined the military or you spend 20 years, say, your friend who flew Apache uh, yeah. <laughs> helicopters, you know, it doesn't matter how old or what your experience is, everybody has leadership experience in military. So that's our final pillar. And so that's that's how we initially organized. And we focused our efforts in addressing each one of those. And I'm happy to say we hit all of our goals for all six of those pillars. I mean, we've, we've seen tremendous, uh, you know, success. And in, in no small part, Matt, because of folks listening into this program today, stepping up, getting behind us to support our campaign to, again, you know, empower veterans and strengthen the community. And I like that it's so holistic because without a job and, you know, with education, it could help the job, but mental health is going to be a part of it, but also physical health and staying healthy and housing and family and leadership. That really would create a healthy human anyway. And if if we if we can take these veterans and, and make them and because you can you you can now reach them if you can find them, like you're saying. Yeah. But if we can reach them and and stabilize their world, then we can continue to utilize all of their history, their great, their other great gifts, and, and move it forward instead of having them just kind of fade. Well, that's just it, and and you you hit the point there, Matt. I mean, those six pillars would apply to anybody having a, a healthy, you know, successful uh, relationship, whether it's with their family or their community. I mean, those are key components to anyone's life, and you know, as it relates to you know, what we have to offer as a, as a community. You know, one of the unique things about serving in the military is, we, you know, we all raised our right hand and we wanted to serve. That idea of service doesn't go away when we take off our uniform. And that's the opportunity, right? That's why it's critical that we empower one another, not only within the veteran community, but across the country, because, you know, we don't succeed in the military without the support of the American public. And so when we leave the military, the same is true, Matt. And so, you know, there's a real opportunity there. And, you know, I want to mention another really exciting uh, program that we have. You know, not too long ago, um, you know, we we talk a lot about the civic assets that veterans are, but, you know, we did uh, did a great uh, research study last year in 2015, and we identified that, you know, it's scientifically a fact that veterans are more likely to do a series of other things than folks who haven't served, whether it's going to the polls, volunteering at their local uh, you know, place of worship, volunteering at the local school, being a better neighbor and helping folks take out the trash or small things like that. And so it's that idea of service that is really the opportunity that we want to tap into, and that's what will strengthen communities across the country. And it's, it's a really exciting time for us. Again, you know, you know, millions and millions of veterans are, are going to be leaving the, the military over the next decade. And again, we see it. this as an opportunity to really just re-engage communities across the country, small towns like the ones I grew up in in rural Ohio or big cities like here in Washington, D.C., where I work now. There's a real opportunity to leverage these folks. And, you know, we're ready to serve. And yeah. so, 
um, you know, bring it on. We're, we're, we're ready to go. Yeah, bring it on. I mean, I, I love this idea of um, kind of being able to adopt a veteran in a way. We, we have a family member that's close that he's, he's our veteran. He's, he's really one of the only veterans that is in my circle of influence. Um, I mean, except for, you know, business connections. But I, I sit there and I, my son needed to have a veteran to interview for his school project. And we had already interviewed my my adopted veteran. And I thought, I don't know any other veterans, but I know there's probably dozens around me that I don't even know about. So I guess it's really my job as as just a civilian to make sure I'm looking and, and really finding finding these veterans. Well, and, you know, I don't think you're you're unique in that sense, Matt. I think a lot of folks, I meet all kinds of people across the country say, hey, what can I do to help? And, you know, go to our website, guideforsix.org, and we actually have a site, a page that says, hey, what can you do, right? Whether it's reading a book about uh, military service, whether it's volunteering for one of these amazing nonprofit partners. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that folks can get out there and do something. And, you know, I I think it's critical to, to take a moment and recognize the tremendous sea of goodwill that our country has displayed uh, since before going to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, but especially since. I mean, it has been tremendous. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think it's critical for us to recognize that. I mean, certainly veterans are civic assets, and we're leaders, and we're, we're ready to go and, and take on this challenge when we leave uni- the uniform behind. But at the same time, like I said earlier, the, the same reasons we were successful in uniform was because the American people had our six. And so it's critical as we go back out into these small towns and, and big cities that uh, folks realize it's still a team effort, right? Mm. It's one team, one fight. And, and like I said earlier, there's an exciting opportunity here. Oh, I, I, and, and again, the website is just such a great resource because, um, like you were saying, there's so many other ways to do it. You could mentor a military child. You could participate in national holidays. Talk to your, you know, your alma mater about making sure they're veteran friendly. You could join an affinity group at work, watch videos, yeah. read books about the military. And you've got all of these on your site to just educate and and inform people what else they can be doing. Yeah, it's, it, it's exciting. And again, it's, it, it goes both ways. I mean, for a lot of folks, depending on how long they served, I mean, we're, we're getting used to the transition back into the community with civilians as much as civilians are with the military. Right. So that's where the opportunity is. And, you know, a lot of folks talk about a civil, civilian-military divide, and we certainly want to bridge that gap. But I'd even challenge the concept. I mean, you know, there, we don't want there to be a bridge. I know there's not a bridge between my house and my neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. Even where I grew up in the, the, the farmland of Ohio, it, it was a long way, but there wasn't a bridge, for goodness sake. And so, you know, I think it's it's more attainable than – than people realize, and that's why Guy Your Six exists, you know, to, to, again, take a research and results-driven approach to truly empowering our veterans and strengthen communities, because the bottom line is, is that it's going to make our country um, better than it's ever been, and, it, you know, it takes all of us rowing in the same direction, and, and that's, you know, that's why we're fired up, and again, you know, Matt, we can't say thanks enough for giving us a platform you bet. To, to, you know, to voice uh, not only what we do, but why we do it, yeah. which is why you know this is so critical. Well, and you're—I think you're that important. And I like the idea too that it's—we're really all in this together, and it's the least the rest of us can do for those that served. And th- they didn't do it to be honored; they did it because they care, and we should care just as much about about not. Yeah, like I like the idea—not having the bridge, not needing the bridge, but working on it and 
getting closer to our veterans. Bill Roush, we appreciate you. Keep up your great work there at gotyour6.org. Again, highly recommend. Everybody, go check out the website. Just go learn about what you could teach your kids, your families, about dispelling some of the myths um, about veterans and also what you can do today to actually start you know, increasing um, and empowering and magnifying our, our veterans as they come back. More and more, 250,000 veterans are you know, retiring from the military every year, and uh, they need to... They need to be heard. They need to be understood and uh, elevated. Good stuff, folks. Man, leadership. One of the goals of this show is to help you lead a better life. I'm telling you, the veterans have got some serious life skills and leadership skills that we need to take advantage of. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, in just a minute here, we're going to have a, a tangent from Leanna Tan. But before that, just wanted to share an interesting story with you that uh, I'm sure we can all relate to as we're often frustrated in our cars. That seems to be where most of our frustrations come from is, is in our cars. We become different people at times when we sit down there. It's not because I'm in the cars, because of what other people are doing Oh, on the road. So the problem is not you, but it's the other people. Exactly. Okay, we've gotten it. All right. So short yellow times me, uh, meant big cash for the city of Fremont, California. Merely by shaving 0.7 seconds from the yellow light timing at a pair of intersections one year ago, the city's private ticketing vendor was able to generate nearly $200,000 a month in extra citations over the course of nine months. Mm. Originally, the two intersections each had a 4.0 second yellow time, so four seconds. In August 2015, the city had no choice but to boost the timing to 4.7 seconds after the California Department. Department of Transportation, Caltrans, applied new signal timing regulations requiring the use of realistic speed estimates when timing lights. Then the city decided in February 2016 to switch the traffic survey used so that it could lower the speed limit and slash the yellow back to 4.0 seconds at both locations. The effect was immediate. Increasing the yellow time by 0.7 seconds in 2015 slashed the number of tickets issued by 77% and shortening it back uh, to 4 seconds in February 2016 caused a 445% spike in ticketing. Jeez. And at the other intersection, shortening it back to 4.2 seconds sent violations skyward by 883%. In November of 2016, the city decided to switch back to the 4.7 second yellow time for an undisclosed for undisclosed reasons, but I'm sure it'll be back once uh, they need more money. I feel <laughs> like the yellow lights here in Utah are shorter than they used to be. They're very deceptive. But uh, knock on wood, hopefully I don't get a ticket going through a yellow light. But I've never done that. No. I've never, I've never, no. ran, I've never run a red light. Never. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we can't obviously control the traffic lights. Uh, and you know, Leanna Tan says that life moves pretty fast. Things happen that are out of our control. There is really no way to be prepared for everything. 
and she has recently dealt with herself an unexpected challenge and survived, and today shares some tips on how to better expect the unexpected. Last night, I had to write my own eulogy. Yeah, that wasn't how I was expecting to spend my Monday night. Okay, it wasn't a real eulogy. It was for an assignment. But still, it got me thinking. Things can spring up on you at any moment, even your death. There are a million things that happen during our weeks that are completely unexpected. It's not even halfway through the week yet, and I've already had my apartment's water turned off, gotten a parking ticket, and had to write my own eulogy. I think my life is so unpredictable that by now I've come to expect all the craziness. So, in order to spare you all from any disastrous or regrettable happenings, I've decided to impart some of my wisdom to you. So, here are five ways to expect the unexpected. One. Keep a fork and spoon with you at all times. Oh, we'll have our cake and eat it I first learned this skill at girls' camp when I was younger. I realized that every camp I passed on the way to my own campsite had different meals at different times, and they all smelled so good. They were all so hospitable to let me sit and eat with them or give me leftovers if I stopped to say hi. So I soon discovered that keeping a fork and spoon in my back pocket made the whole process a lot more smooth and made it so that I could stop by anytime I wanted and get food. Hey, look what you got there! Why don't you join the rest of the girls and have some cherry cobbler? And this skill has transferred from that to my daily living. I mean, you never know where there will be free food and leftovers somewhere. Okay, what we have here. Some doofus in the drive-thru ordered this burrito and then just drove off. I mean, you never know when there'll be free food or leftovers somewhere. Free up memory on your phone. It's always awkward when that video of your best friend getting proposed to gets cut off halfway because you didn't have enough memory for that entire five minutes. Will you make me the happiest man alive in marriage? Out of memory. Or when someone's trying to send themselves that picture you took together only to have to navigate through a sea of selfies. Keep that spare change. Estimate the worth of that penny you see lying on the ground. And next time you're checking out at Walmart, pull out that spare $20 bill. It'll save you a lot of embarrassment when that unexpected credit card expiration date creeps up or when you accidentally leave your money in your other purse or pants pockets. You know, I used to find random dollar bills in my dad's glove compartments, and when I asked him what it was for, he said, in case of emergency. Then I'd find more bills in his cup holders, and he said that was his spare cash in case he forgot where his emergency money was. Then I found more bills in his sunglasses compartments, and he said that was his other spare cash for his spare spare cash. Don't keep anything of importance on your computer. I'll be gone. I'm glad I grew up in the age of the internet because if your computer is anything like mine, you never know when it's going to randomly freeze, turn off, or struggle to start back up. Aw man, somebody must have put a magnet on my floppy disk. And I had like five word perfect documents on that thing. Needless to say, technology isn't super reliable. So I advise getting an external hard drive or storing things on the internet. Keep an extra stick of deodorant. I think this is the unexpected event that sneaks up on us all. It's just a small part of our daily routine, but has such a huge impact on others. You don't realize it's important till it's gone. Keeping a spare stick of deodorant will save you from resorting to drenching yourself in perfume, keeping a dryer sheet in your pocket, or 
stealing your roommates. Or using this bottle of new car smell. And this one really benefits us all. So maybe you should go with my dad's tactic on this one and keep a spare for your spare. Well, there you go. Five golden nuggets of wisdom. I hope none of you are writing your own eulogies or facing any parking tickets. But if so, at least you'll have a stomach satisfied with complimentary food and a freed-up phone to document it. Now you can rest assured, nothing will sneak up on you. Happy expecting. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. It is still Wednesday, February 15th. No time has really passed other than the couple of hours during the show. And uh, it is officially... Breakup, happy breakup day, where, as we've already proven, you can have a happy breakup. You can go on a walk with a significant other and say, I think we should break up, and have them turn to you and say, oh, I'm so happy. It's the weirdest breakup I've ever had. I'm leaving now. I'm exiting the studio. (laughs) Sean is breaking up with the show. But that would be a sad breakup. Anyway, uh, hopefully if you've got to break up with somebody, you can do it in a happy or amiable way. Nobody gets hurt and uh, no houses or cars get egged or vandalized in any other way. I don't want to be an Amy, though. An Amy? You said it had to be an amiable. Oh, amiable. Gotcha. All right. Well, happy breakup day. And also happy buy discount candy day at Walmart and Target. Because they all mark them down. They want them off the shelves like yesterday. Well, actually, it's probably all been changed. Usually it's changed over overnight. My all wife, the Valentine's candy has been moved to another aisle, and the main candy aisle is now Easter. My wife went to Winco right. yesterday. No, no. she went. Uh, it was Winco or Target. She tried to pick up something else for Valentine's Day. They had already cleared Gone. all of their shelves of all the val- – it was on Valentine's Day. She couldn't get something Valentine's related. I still remember before Christmas – they had Valentine stuff up in the store. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by that one. <sighs> Retailers. I know. Anyway, go and get of course, some candy. Christmas is up in July, so hey. So look for that Christmas candy coming up real soon. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, coming up in the program, we're going to be speaking to a motivational speaker slash athlete who has a new book that uh, hopefully will inspire you to overcome obstacles and climb metaphorical mountains. We're very interested in speaking with him. His name is Jeff Griffin. And then also, of course, we like to head on over to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. I probably wouldn't say good brethren, not because they're bad brethren, but sometimes I just say the things Matt says when he's gone because I miss him. Helps you feel closer. Plus, I have to listen to him for three hours every day, so some of those idiosyncrasies (laughs) and phrases tend to sink in a little bit. So you need to break up with Matt a little bit I might. Hmm. Or just ignore him like I do sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, we'll top off the show with, of course, our hero story of the day. But before we get to all of that fun stuff, let's head on over to... ah, I did it again. I implied that 
what we're about to hear is not fun, which is not true. Eh. Let's head on over to Terry South, who's going to give us some other fun news of uh, what's going on around the country. Terry, what's up? Expectations in Israel are high for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as he holds his first post-inauguration meeting with President Trump at the White House today. Netanyahu had famously a rocky relationship with former President Barack Obama is expected to seek a public reset of U.S.-Israeli relations plus commitment to a hardline stance on Iran while trying to avoid any confrontation on Israeli settlements in Palestinian lands. So they have a difficult itinerary today. Lots of things to avoid, things to go after, things to chase down. What do you talk about? You can't talk about many issues that they want to talk about. And then only four questions afterwards. And then only four questions from the media. Trump has been focusing on his reaching a peace deal between Israel and the Palestinians and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law and Mideast peace envoy will take part in Wednesday's meeting along with strategist Steve Bannon. So, Can he come up with some kind of a peace treaty with the media now? Uh, I don't know if he wants one. I think he likes having that foil. <laughs> So they will have that joint press conference later today. He is the media, isn't he? Could be. (laughs) Depends. Shortly after President Trump slammed the failing New York Times for his report on Trump campaign aides allegedly in contact with Russian intelligence officers, an editor at NBC News pointed out that the reporter who broke that story was the same guy behind the noteworthy report calling out Hillary Clinton's use of a personal email address during her tenure as Secretary of State. As it turns out, New York Times writer Michael S. Schmidt was behind both stories. Clinton's email server and the uh, Trump campaign and their connections possibly to Uh Russian intelligence. It's the same guy. He's an equal opportunity reporter. From the New York Times. Yeah, go figure, right? The failing New York Times. You forgot that part. Oh, sorry. Even though their subscriptions are up and everything's great. (laughs) They're hiring more people to cover all this stuff because the more attention they get, the more attention they get. Well, I'm sure they have more news now than they've had in a long time. U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis reaffirmed America's support for NATO on Wednesday, describing the alliance as a fundamental bedrock for the U.S. and all of the transatlantic community. He called the NATO headquarters his home away from home, I do believe I read. Mm. Uh, Speaking in Brussels at a meeting. Be it ever so humble. Right. Speaking in Brussels at a meeting for a of defense ministers, Mattis also reiterated U.S. President Donald Trump's call for fellow members to meet the requisite spending targets of 2% of your GDP, or get within 2% of your GDP, I think is what they were saying. If the members fail to meet the targets, Mattis says the U.S. will, quote, moderate our commitment to NATO. Cut back on money. So we'll see what happens. Okay. The British government has rejected a petition demanding the visit from President Trump be canceled. In a response posted online to an online petition, the government's Foreign and Commonwealth Office says it should extend the full courtesy to the U.S. and Trump. Her Majesty's government recognizes the strong views expressed by many signatories in the petition, but does not support this petition. The statement reads, the government believes the President of the United States should be extended the full courtesy of a state visit. He will not address Parliament, though. They, they voted, we're not going to listen to you. Um, so the final dates for the trip haven't been set, but there's going to be a trip. He may meet the queen if they see it's not Is there going to be a protest problem? for every visit from a foreign dignitary? As long as we keep blocking people from the country for suspect reasons that people don't agree with? Possibly. Hmm. All right. And finally, in Dubai. <gasps> hopes are having a passenger carrying drone regularly buzzing through the skyline of the city by late July. That's what they hope. A Chinese-made E-Hang-184 can carry a passenger weighing up to 220 pounds and a small suitcase, reports EAP. After 
Uh, buckling into its race car style seat, the craft's passenger selects a destination on a touchscreen pad, and the drone flies there automatically. The drone, which has a battery allowing for a half hour flight time and a range up to 31 miles, will be monitored remotely by a control room on the ground. Its top speed is 100 miles per hour. Authorities say it'll typically travel about 62 miles an hour. The Dubai Transportation Authority announced plans to have this craft regularly flying around the city by July. Taxi. Right. Yeah. Flying taxis for you. Sorry, I gasped I'm when sorry. you said Dubai because uh, I just immediately thought of that scene in Mission Impossible 4 where Tom Cruise is mm-hmm. scaling that hotel in Dubai. I like the Fast, I, the Fast and the Furious where they drove yes. cars through, through the same, I think, same skyscraper. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. But they drove it from one skyscraper yeah. and landed in another skyscraper and then went through that one. I thought it was a better scene. It was. Really, Cru- but that Tom- was more was CGI. A Lam- it was a Lamborghini, wasn't it? That's fine. Tom so- Cruise was really on the outside of that yeah, hotel with like ninety, you know, yeah. whatever hooks and exactly. cords and cables. That yeah, they, they CGI'd out. So I still much, wouldn't be much, on the side of that building. How much CGI do you want to have in your movie? I think you know, I, I, I'd rather go with a flying cars. I could see with this flying drone, though, if it gets popular, things are going to look like Coruscant. Maybe, maybe <laughs> either that or uh, you know, Fifth Element cities. Yeah, we'll have wow. To see. Well, as long as they can deliver pizzas and tacos, that's okay with me. How about a taco pizza? <gasps> Ooh. You weren't here. Oh, did you miss the uh, – I think you missed the brocade yesterday of I did. Kentucky Fried Chicken. I did. That Terry talked about. Nobody got me one for Valentine's Day. Well, they're in New Zealand. Well, that would be your wife's problem. <sighs> Only available in <laughs> New Zealand. I, that's ridiculous, though, because how, how difficult would it be to just well, go buy those then go buy and, it then. Go, go find a drone that will fly no, from no, New no, Zealand. No. no, 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 no. The point was for somebody else to buy well, it for me. Well, then call your wife and have her do that. Valentine's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Day is between you and your wife. Oh, you know what my gift was? A butter dish. Ooh. You got a <laughs> butter dish? Okay. Well, because I've been I've been wanting a butter dish, and so she chose to wait until Valentine's Day to give it to me. I think it was just one of those things where she saw it at the store, and may not have had anything else to give me that day. So, of course, presented it presented it to me there. Wow. But you know, I just went to Costco and got her some chocolate covered strawberries. There you go. So, but no uh, brocade of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Sorry. Maybe next year. Fingers crossed. Anyway, Terry, any other interesting stories we should be focusing on this morning? I got one out of Pravda. Pravda. Which is the... That's a Russian word. The Russian uh, state newspaper. Yeah. I just found it. Uh, the start of tests for Russia's first ever reusable suborbital spacecraft for space tourism is scheduled for 2019-2020. Right, so they'll start testing this, and they also announced how much it would cost to ride this rocket into space, so you can go up in orbit, experience weightlessness, and then you come back. How much do you think that would cost? What would you pay to fly to space tourism? How much would you pay for? A I'm guessing well, I know they gonna were going to be... have one of the what was it, InSync or Backstreet Boys, Lance Bass, right. and that was going to be that millions. was over twenty, like twenty, twenty-two million dollars. Right. Yeah. But that wasn't a just experience space and no. come right back. No. Did he ever do that, by the way? No, he did not. Nah, ran out of money. Any ideas? How much? What would you? What would be a charge for a ticket? So this is just like a drone taking you up into space and it's coming a, back. It's a rocket. It goes up. I don't know if it's piloted. I'm not sure how the the issues that no. way are. But one point two million. No. More. Three hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Really? 
I originally Boy. was going to say several hundred that's, thousand. That's a but... Richard Branson deal right there. However, the price may change. <laughs> of course. <Uh-oh. laughs> so tickets for space tours go on sale as early as 2018. Yes. The spacecraft will be launched from the Rushman, Russian uh, Cosmodrome where they launch everything now. You know, how how, the, how astronauts from this country get into space now. You go to Russia and you go to yeah. the Cosmodrome and they launch you into space. Does Elon Musk have anything to do with this? Uh, he's got his own deal. Wrong. He, he, he's, he wants to live up there, right? Or he wants to oh, – he's yeah, yeah. kind of spearheading he that movement. To, he wants to go to Mars. A, a, candidate, uh, the, a candidate will be allowed to fly into space after all procedures related to payment, three days of training – and medical examination are complete, uh, according to the release they gave. Up to six space travelers will be able to stay in space for 15 minutes, of which five or six minutes will be under conditions of weightlessness. You, you can do that now cheaper if you just go to, what, NASA and go on their airplane that goes, you right. know, that parabolic flight. Hmm. Come on. So what – and then they also announced a plan – uh, the the Russian Rocket and Space Corporation announced a project to send a group of space travelers to the moon. Okay. What's a one-way ticket? Not one-way oh. ticket, but what's a ticket to the moon about? That's what the you, silliest thing I've ever heard. What do you think that'll cost? For a Russian or for just anybody in general? Anybody. Buy, mm. buy a ticket. They're going to take you to the moon, and then you come back. Oh, I thought it was a one-way ticket. No, they're not doing okay. one-ways. Um, two-way <laughs> ticket to – oh, gosh. It's got to be at least – if. If going up into space is, this on Virgin Atlantic? is 250,000 then 200, this, 200 to 250,000. Okay, so this is going to be 4.75 million. To the moon, Alice. They're saying currently 100, 120 million dollars. Oh. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. That was a bit off. The first but... short flight to the moon is to be conducted on board a uh, Soyuz spaceship already plan- in the plans for 2020. So Russia wants to go back to the moon. Okay, so I thought it was just uh, Have that... they been to the moon? Uh, I don't know. I think they went around the moon. That 4.7 million, million figure was based on my understanding. It was just some guy named Mikolov who right. was just taking you in his homemade rocket ship. No, You're wrong. Okay. There's a whole industry. Just like here, there's a private industry growing over there in Russia as they're also trying to get to the moon. Hmm. Space commerce. I think we have a little bit of audio from somebody who wants to ride oh, nice. that first one. But wow. if he was outside of the spaceship, would yeah. you hear that? Eh, I don't know. Isn't that one of the criticisms of In the space, Star Wars no movies is that uh, the explosions you would never hear? So what's kind of – what's fueling this interest again in traveling to the moon and outer space? The lack of a space program. The Martian. <sighs> the Martian. <laughs> there's, a, there, there's no governmental effort to uh, – here in the promote, United States? Yeah, to yeah. promote space travel. And so here, that's why there's a lot of companies because like Elon Musk is trying to use SpaceX as this is how we can do that. We can do it cheaper. That's why he wants to land the rockets instead of just let them go into the ocean like the – you know, he, he wants to be able to reuse – Recycle. Pro- recycle sure, yeah. what he's using yeah. so it's cheaper. Well, so. and you notice too that that movie Hidden Figures is out right about now. So it all mm-hmm. seems – there seems to be a push to create more interest in traveling to space. Hmm. Hmm. It's expensive, though, so I don't know how much interest you can generate for $120 million to go to the moon. Are there any competing companies that can get me to the moon for that $4.75 Maybe. Wasn't Richard Branson doing something? 
maybe there's several. I don't know if that's several, still going on. Bezos has one. Oh, okay. Blue something. I forget the name of it. But <laughs> but he has a, a, another. They're actually further along than SpaceX. I guess Blue Dentures. Could be. But you don't really hear about his company's achievements because SpaceX has all the, the You know, hype. Bezos needs to master the two-day shipping before he needs to move on to That's the space one of, exploration. One of his many projects. Well, they've got to they've get that down if they want me to renew next year. When I lived in California, two-day shipping, no problem. Sometimes one-day shipping. When I lived in Washington, no surprise there. Two-day shipping or sooner. But here in the state of Utah... Two-day shipping is not a real thing. Anyway, Bezos, if you're listening, <laughs> just master the two-day shipping, and then I'll uh, maybe I'll invest in your space exploration program. Anyway, when we come back, Sean O'Neill is giving me perplexed looks over there. When we come back... <laughs> We will be talking to a, a motivational speaker who's also a, uh, an award-winning athlete. His name is Jeff Griffin, and he'll be talking to us about how we can overcome obstacles and be our best selves. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. As promised, we're going to be speaking with Jeff Griffin, who is a wheelchair athlete who earned his master's degree in education and knows how to win. He played in the 2004 Athens Olympics, holds a Guinness Book of World Records record, and is a four-time NWBA All-Star MVP. He enjoys mentoring youth, distributing wheelchairs, and providing peer training materials through his humanitarian humanitarian efforts with LDS Charities, which he currently sits on the board. Jeff Griffin, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here with you guys today. Thank you for being here. And as I understand, you've met Matt Townsend in person, correct? Oh, I have. He's, uh, he's an energetic, funny, fantastic... Uh, Man, and uh, he, he just lifts you up. It's it's he has great energy. You're not kidding. I I just went to one of his date nights this last weekend, and I keep doing these shameless promotions while he's away. But it was fantastic. He was up there for two and a half hours without a break, didn't miss a beat, and uh, he oh he was amazing. Um, and, and captivating, right? Yes, absolutely. I thought you know if this whole. Uh, Relationship coaching slash motivational speaking doesn't work out for you, Matt. Then maybe you should be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> so, so Jeff, I um, thanks again for being on the show. I'm we we wanted to talk to you a little bit about your book here. I'm possible, and uh, I was curious, what was it that inspired you to write this book? Well, what's interesting is is I I'm a strong believer, right? Uh, Ralph Waldo Waldo Emerson. Sorry, I've got a little, a little tongue tied, little tongue tied <laughs> there. Um, uh, kind of excited to speak with you guys. And so, anyway, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, said that that which we persist in doing becomes easier for us to do. 
not that the nature of the thing itself has changed, but that our power to do is increased. Yeah. Um, you know, I always shared that when I was a younger kid, and, and I don't know if I believed it very much, but, um, you know, I, I've been told my whole life, and I'm sure a lot of us have been told that, that you can't do this, you can't do that. And, uh, and um, I remember my English teacher telling me, she's like, you're never going to amount to anything. And, uh, and she went on to give me some examples of why, why I wouldn't and, and how my sisters were smarter than me and this and that. And, and uh, she said, uh, you, you'll never amount to anything. And, um, you know, I believe that there's a, a lot of us listening here and, and, and whatnot in our lives have been told things, right? And we grasp onto those and we just swallow it whole and, and, and believe it wholeheartedly and, and it destroys us. And um, what motivated me to write this book, I'm Possible, is, is my accident. You know, I was a, an aspiring athlete. My dream was to go play football at BYU as a f- receiver and had an accident in between seasons my, uh, the first year. You know, we went undefeated that first season, came home, and I had an accident. And I'd uh, love to share with you a little bit about that in, in a minute. But uh, I fell 40 feet from a construction accident, broke my back, shattered my dreams of playing football. And, uh, and as I laid there broken and beaten on, on the ground, um, I had to, uh, I had to lift myself up and shift and, and shift through the shattered pieces and, and, and find out what do I really believe in? What do I really want to do? And, uh, and I, and I had to, have a, a just a self evaluation, and I was able to discover a few elements that uh, that gave me success throughout my life, and would continue to give me success into the future. And and so one of those things was that which we persist in doing becomes easier for us to do. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I wasn't that great with English. Maybe I wasn't that great with words, but if I persist at it and I continue to do it and find somebody who is, who can teach me how to do that, then you know what? I can get better. And so I was told that I, I, never amount to anything in English or whatnot. And, uh, now I go around speaking, uh, doing some motivational, um, um, events. And, and I wrote this book. I wrote this book. It took me 10 years to write it, but that's what inspired me is, you know, if I can do it, I believe anyone can do it. And, uh, and, and that's just my, that's just my desire is to get out there and uh, inspire others to let them know that they can accomplish their dreams. Yeah. Jeff, you mentioned that, you know, there were people in your life, like your English teacher, that that were constantly telling you, you can't do this, you're not going to amount to anything. I want to know, is there someone in your life who really inspired you or you would consider your hero? Um, I know it's not Mother's Day yet. We just got done with Valentine's, celebrating Valentine's Day yesterday. But uh, to be honest with you, I, I give all the credits to my mother. And uh, every time, every time... I, I would say a negative comment or every time I would uh, disbelieve in myself or, or whatever it was, my mother was there to correct me and give me a different opinion. And, uh, and, and I credit her in, in everything, you know, they, they, uh, um, they say that, you know, you look really, really good and you've accomplished a lot of things, but uh, I'm telling you, 
it's easy to look good on the shoulders of giants. And my mother is one of those giants. Mm, And, you know, I know a lot of people could say that. And unfortunately, a lot of people probably can't say that. But uh, hopefully we can all think that way about our mothers. Um, So tell us a little bit more about some of the steps that you mentioned in your book and in your uh, motivational events that you talked about. What, uh, What are some of the elements that go into achieving your dreams? Yeah, thank you. Um, I love that. As I mentioned before, as I, as I was uh, sifting through the uh, the shattered pieces of my dream, right, I, I really wanted to, to go play football there at BYU, and, and I was there. I was I was a step closer, and and uh, I and and I and I re- realized that uh, the the number one thing that we all have to begin with is we need to we need to make sure and understand that we have a true, definite burning desire to uh, to accomplish that goal because if we really don't want what we dream about it's not going to happen because there's other people who want your attention there's other voices out there that that are going to get us to um do what they want to do and and uh if we don't have that burning desire and that belief within ourselves um it's not going to happen you know i always share this example of um plato and socrates i'm, I'm sure you've heard the analogy with you know the um Young Plato wanted to, or was it Socrates? I don't remember who was the younger one, but uh, they were credited. You know, the one went to the other and said, "I want to be just like you. I want to to learn from you. I want to be wealthy like you." And and uh, the old sage turns to the you know to the uh, learner and says, "You're not ready. Come back to me when you have a true desire." And that goes on for a couple couple days, couple weeks, and then finally uh, the sage turns around, walks down to the water's edge, and, and the you know young man falls behind, not wanting to, to miss his life lesson. And then they go into the water, right? And they come up to their, their waist in water, and, and uh, the old wise sage turns to the uh, youth and, and grabs his head and thrusts it underneath the water and holds it there, and almost before he loses consciousness. And, and then at, right before he loses consciousness, he brings him up and, and gasping for air, you know, angrily asks, why did you do that? And then, of course, he learned the lesson of a lifetime, and uh, he looks him in the eye and says, as soon as you want to learn as much as you wanted that breath of air, then can I teach you? Right. And I think we need to really evaluate our desires, because there, there's, there's conflicting desires all around us, everywhere we go. Yeah. So you've got desire... What uh, what are some of the other key elements that uh, go into achieving your dreams? Well, um, along with the name of the book, I'm possible desire, dream, and do. Um, this this idea of people are constantly telling us that hey, listen, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to uh, to do this, or you can't do that. And 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 I think you know we're told all the time, but I don't know if we we fully understand and believe that we really have that ability within us. We just have to be willing to listen and look for the signs that uh, they're all around us that will that will help us achieve our dreams, not just our dreams, but our definite purpose in life. Each one of us has has a certain calling that uh, that we can accomplish and uh, and find joy and happiness. And so, as mentioned on the uh, the, the title of the book, by the way, all your listeners, you know, today uh, they go to GriffinMotivation.com. They can 
they can go and get my book for free. They just have to pay shipping and handling, and uh, and they can find a lot more about some of these steps. Um, but another one is is our attitude, right? You, know, you got desire, you got to have a dream, and then you've got to do something about it. But every single one of them has to have a positive attitude. Your attitude determines everything. Um, as I fly throughout the world, um, I go to point, you know, I, I get on these planes and, and fly to L.A. To, to New York or wherever it might be. And if, if, if the plane is just off one degree, you know, it, uh, it does not get to its destination. And what I've learned in my travels that uh, the instrument that gets the plane from point A to point B is called the attitude meter. And I find that interesting because we constantly have to adjust our attitude. And if we're not working on our attitude, the desire will weaken, our dreams will be cloudy. And when it comes down to actually doing something, um, you know, we'll just be so discouraged and, and we'll be looking at the negative aspect of, of life that uh, we, just, we just won't be able to accomplish it. And so an, an attitude, an attitude is so important, so important. In fact, uh, you know, I go around and, and help motivate people and, and talk to people about how to increase their desire and, and improve their dreams and, and actually take the steps necessary to accomplish it. Um, that even I myself need to adjust my attitude. We all need to adjust our attitude. And so uh, I, I've made a little power phrase, a little, a little, you know, those power phrases that uh, get you through those moments yeah. of darkness and discouragement. And um, I put it on a bracelet and it, I put that on there. I'm possible. I'm possible. The other one is don't quit, capital D-O-I-T, in the front end and the back end of, of, the, of that phrase. And when I get discouraged or get off course, I just reach down and flip the bracelet, and uh, it stings me a little bit, and, but it reminds me. It brings me back to center. It brings me back to balance to where um, I can remember that, you know what? Listen, everything's going to be great. I just have to have a, a, a positive attitude, and it will work out. Yeah. Jeff, uh, let's let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about some of your sporting accomplishments and uh, and also where you've been around the world and, and what things you've noticed as you've as you've traveled and served around the world and delivered your motivational speeches there. Let's let's do that. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've been speaking here with Jeff Griffin, who is a who holds a master's degree in education. He is also a motivational speaker and serves on the board of LDS Charities. And he rejoins us here on the show. Jeff, thank you for uh, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. This has been uh, this has been wonderful. Yeah. So I, I wanted to hear more about your travels around the world, where you've been, and and what has surprised you as you've met with people who may be struggling with uh, trials, whether they're physical or emotional. What have you noticed? Yeah, it's 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 been amazing. I really enjoy meeting with people. You know, with this social media and whatnot, um, sometimes we lose contact. 
um, face-to-face conversations and, uh, and, and experiencing those emotions that we feel. I love doing that. Uh, one of my travels, I ran to a young, young man. I won't, I won't call him his name just for the, just to, to save his privacy. And also, uh, so, um, you'll understand once I tell you, but, uh, this young man was a, a police officer in, in Nevada, wanted to be a Navy SEAL. That was his dream. That was his desire. Wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And, and he just, you know how we, we know our inadequacies and, uh, yeah. we always base, we always base the future, um, upon those deficiencies. And so it's very, very hard to get out of that cycle, that slump, I call it. And, um, and so I was just talking to him and meeting with him, and, 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 we, and we were discussing uh, this idea of if, if that's what he wants to be, and instead of talking about it as if it's going to happen in the future and start talking about it as if it has already passed, that's the biggest trick that uh, I, I wouldn't call it a trick. That's, that's the, the greatest skill that, uh, that, I'll, that I teach these guys and these people is, is to um, let them reach into the future, grab what's going to happen down the path, right, and bring it back to the present. And, and they've got to mentally and visually see themselves being and doing what they what they dream about doing and so we talked we talked and uh, and we got past his doubts and his fears and his discouragements and uh, he was starting to talk as if he had already become a navy seal and uh and so um it, it was awesome it was it was great to see that that shift that simple little shift in thinking and uh you know it's great to see that uh not only did he want to become a navy seal but he is a navy seal and so, uh, you know, it, that was just that was just a really, really neat experience to um, to have with him. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you share your own experience in the book of of having the construction site accident, and obviously, some of the trials that you have gone through are more physical in nature. But what about does your book? Can your book help people that might be struggling with? weight issues, or maybe they suffer from depression. Is this something that can help them as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, what's interesting is, is you know, now, now that I'm in a wheelchair, and, and I'll, and I'll get, to your, get to your question in just one second, but uh, I want to share with you, you asked another question about how, what, what am I doing in the world and whatnot. In fact, what inspired the introduction of this book, I'm Possible, you know, I, I, wrote, I wrote the book, wrote the chapters, loved what I saw, Love what I was reading, but I'm like I'm missing an introduction. And uh, it took me ten years to write the book because uh, I was always waiting for it to be perfect. And I've learned that uh, it's never going to be perfect, but uh, you know I can always improve upon that. But in one of my travels, I was asked to go to Nepal and um, do a week long seminar and and uh, teach the individuals there in Nepal who are in wheelchairs who have been uh, you know shoved into the shadows of society, where you know they just want to you know here you go, we're going to try to keep you away from everything else and whatnot. But, uh, and so they, they, they invited me to go there for a week-long seminar. And um, as I'm flying into Kathmandu, it was just the most magnificent scene that I've ever seen. I looked out to the window after a 24-hour you know, travel itinerary to get there. I look out the window, and to my left 
is Mount Everest, just peaking above the clouds. Mm. And, and, and I found it interesting that, you know, who, who come to Nepal go there to climb this mountain that uh, people said was impossible to climb. And uh, here I was coming to Kathmandu, where Mount Everest was, to help some individuals climb their own Mount Everests. Perhaps they weren't the physical Mount Everests, you know, that uh, some, some mountaineers would come there for. But like you mentioned, uh, you know, weight issues, uh, depression, um, trying to find a job. In fact, this, this week-long seminar was to, to help these citizens come out of the shadows of society and have success in whatever they wanted to do. And I believe the formula is the same for any obstacle that one has. And, and so this book is, is perfect for those who are, who are wanting to improve on the relationship. It's great for those who are, are seeking for weight loss help. It's great for relationships um, be, because of the formula. If you, if, you, if you apply the formula to whatever aspect of your life you're looking at, um, it will bring you success. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it with thousands of people in different areas of their life. You know, this young man wanted to be a, a Navy SEAL. I've worked with some people who wanted to lose some weight. You know, my favorite, my favorite, uh, talking about those who want to lose some weight. My favorite uh, comment I always hear is, "I'm big boned." <laughs> I'm, yep. I, I'm big boned. I'm not fat. I'm big boned. I'm like, you know, the, the year I was in uh, college in the anatomy um, rooms, I never did see a big bone skeleton. But um, but uh, what I've what I've learned and noticed is these individuals, their their minds, right? They, they've they have this evidence that's telling them that you that you can't lose weight. No matter what you do, you're just going to keep gaining weight, or you're not going to lose weight. And so we have this outside evidence telling us that uh, we can't do this, and we start to believe it. Other people tell us that we can't do it, and we start to believe it. And so this idea of having to break out of that negative thinking is, is one of the hugest things to do. You know, um, we're only a thought away from changing our lives. And, and, I, and I spend a lot of time focusing on, on that, uh, that concept of changing your thinking. You change your thinking, it will change your words. You change your words, it will change your actions. You change your actions and you become that which you desire to be. And, uh, and so it, it begins back to the, to the thought and, uh, and helping them uh, come up with that, that burning, definite desire. And so, yes, absolutely, it can help with those who are faced with uh, health issues, mental issues. In fact, I love, there's a verse in the Bible, Luke 2.52. In fact, I call this principle Luke, I call it 2.52. And um, it, it, it teaches us there in the Bible that, that Jesus increased, right, in four areas of his life. Um, wisdom, spiritual, physical, and social, and uh, and so I believe that that this book um, can help in those four categories: um, physical, social, spiritual, um, and um, it, it's it's just been fantastic to go and and help these individuals have a, a shift in thought. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate uh, your motivation and, and uh, just wanted to give you one more opportunity to tell our listeners what your website is so that they can go and check out that book. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, all those who are interested or want to, please go to www. Sorry, I'll slow down a little bit there. <laughs> www.griffinmotivation.com. You go to griffinmotivation.com. There's a little uh, link right there in the very beginning that you can click on. Give us your address and uh, pay for that shipping and handling. We'll send you a book. And uh, I, I even created a student a student guidebook to go along with it, if that's something that uh, people are interested in. But uh, there's a 21-day transformation um, guidebook that I uh, have available as well. But uh, I've appreciated this opportunity to, to talk with you, Jeff, and, and, uh, and just share some, some things. Um, I just love to see when people um, start down their journey. You know, they, they say that a journey of a 1,000 miles begins with one step. And so uh, I'd love for them to take that first step. Go to my website, get the book, check it out, and uh, hope to hear from you someday. Great. Thanks again, Jeff. We appreciate you. Go to his website, griffinmotivation.com, and check out that free book. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have a brief discussion with a couple of our friends over at BYU Sports Nation. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Here is one of our favorite parts of the show, our time together with, well, today it's going to be Spencer and Jason, but our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. How are you doing? Fantastic. Now, Great. do you really mean it when you say it's one of your favorite times? Was that written down and you just read it? <laughs> <sighs> Well, you don't think I'm genuine when I say that? I want to believe that you are, but I have to ask just to make sure. Okay, well, it is one of my favorite parts of the yes. show. Yes, okay. Hey, and you were just talking with Jeff Griffin, right? Yes. He is in my stake. Really? Great guy. Yeah, great, he's awesome. Great guy. He goes to church with Jason. Yeah. <laughs> he's a great guy. It was, I, I enjoyed hearing him on the show. So, yeah, this is one of my, my favorite parts of the show. It has nothing to do with the fact that the show's over in about nine minutes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yesterday we celebrated Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. Did you get any brocades of anything? No brocades no. of beef jerky, ah, unfortunately. So, so, it was a major letdown. My wife did not deliver the brocade <laughs> like I had hoped she would, but... You know, it turns out that when you don't ask for things that you really want, generally you don't get them. Well, I got a butter dish. Oh, you got a butter dish? Okay. So that was did kind you, of like did a... Did you ask for that? that? Was that a surprise? surprise? Whoa. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we just it went was, to the, the, uh, <laughs> the Twilight Zone. It was a little otherworldly there, yeah. Uh, you know, it's something that's been on my radar, and so uh, my sweet wife got it for me. A butter dish. That's why we're going on nine years of marital bliss, you guys. Is that what is that, that what the is ninth the year is about? The, but- yeah. the butter dish? That's the nine year gift. I missed okay. that memo. Yeah. yeah. It's butter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, today is also uh, breakup day. What? Because day? because it's the day after Valentine's Day. And you're getting butter dishes for Valentine's <laughs> yeah. gifts. You never, you never, ever break up with somebody on Valentine's Day, right? No. And you, if you don't want a girlfriend on Valentine's Day, you don't start to get romantic with somebody like a day or two before Valentine's Day. That is shallow. Right? Nobody would ever do that. Right? Well, I learned that on the great show, The Office. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. When two of the characters, one being Ryan and the other Kelly, was like, yes. I... I stoked the flame again with her the day before Valentine's Day. What was I thinking? You know, I never really did think about it, but you're right. I bet you there are a lot of breakups happening today. People that just, you know what, I want to break up, but I just can't do it. It's Valentine's Day. How about I just wait for the day after when it's nothing? 
And the lines at the return uh, section of Walmart are incredibly long as well. Yes. So uh, in the brief time that we have left, what's coming up on your show, Spencer and Jason? I'm way too interested in discussing what we're still talking about. Uh, <laughs> no butter now, by we've, the way. We've got a loaded show today, including who we think is going to be the impact performer for BYU basketball down the stretch. In fact, a man who is heavily in that conversation, star center Eric Mika, who is on a lot of NBA scouts uh, boards, is going to join us live in Studio B to discuss who he thinks will make the impact for BYU and give us his take on why he thinks BYU has been so inconsistent this season. We're also going to talk a little BYU baseball. Uh, the reigning WCC freshman of the year, he's now a sophomore. He's BYU outfielder Keaton Kringlin. He's going to join us on the program. The baseball team begins the season on Friday in the Atlanta Challenge. And, Can't wait. And then there's this, the debate that has uh, been brewing for the last 30 minutes or so here. Which is better, the Lego Batman movie or the original Lego Ooh, movie? Ooh, that is going to be a heated debate. Have Tough you seen the Lego Batman yet? No, I told my father to not go see it. That was his one instruction, and uh, <laughs> he couldn't do it. Couldn't do it, so I still haven't seen it. Okay. Anyway, and uh, here's hoping that that young man on the baseball team gets recruited by the Los Angeles Dodgers. Oh, oh Dodger yeah, fan, huh? Dodgers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That was Sean, not me. <laughs> anyway, uh, go ahead and have a great show, and we'll we'll hear from you in about five minutes. Hey, that's that sounds great. Uh, until then, I hope you do some more uh, history and research on uh, why it is with the psyche of people that they want to break up in the spring and uh, they stay together through the winter. I want to know the answer to that. We've got our best analysts on that. <laughs> okay. All right. Have a good show, you guys. Bye. <sighs> oh yeah, I don't think you heard about this, Sean. Hmm. My father and my mother were coming into town. Yeah. And I said, okay, we want to go see the Lego Batman movie. Don't go see it without us. We'll go see it together. So we go to Carl's Jr. while my parents are up north, and I get a voicemail about an hour and a half after it was left. And uh, Loved Lego Batman. Well, (laughs) well, not quite, but my father said, yeah, we're going to go see the Lego Batman movie. Just wanted to know if you guys wanted to join us. And by the time I called them back, they were already in the movie. Oh, well. I can tell you it is a must-see movie. Now, is it better than the Lego movie? That is movie? a very hard discussion to have because at certain points, yes. Okay. Is it so jam-packed full of jokes like the Lego movie that yes. it requires repeated viewing? Yes. I want to go see it again. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, and some are saying that Will Arnett is the best Batman. Well, it, it there are jokes. It is. It, this is so packed with jokes. Yeah. There are jokes from about five seconds in the movie, all throughout the rest of the movie. Wow. Mm. So one of those movies that you really have to see again and again and again because you're not going to get all the jokes. Exactly. Wow. And was it over the kids' heads? Did the some, kids some jokes? Okay. Yes, but not all. And as I understand, there are some jokes that revolve around. Kind of the silliness surrounding the DC universe right now with oh, yes. Batman and Superman. and Yes, definitely. Okay. Definitely. I, in fact, I just got a text message during the show asking me if I wanted to go see that with a buddy today. I would go. <sighs> if only. Let, here's hoping. Oh. All right. I might go with you. <laughs> Well, as you know, we like to end the show with our hero story of the day. And uh, none of the female students, teachers, or staff at Holman High School left empty-handed this Valentine's Day. 
Holman senior Zach Peterson handed out more than 625 long-stemmed roses Thursday morning at the high school as the female students were called to the school's large group room one grade at a time. The sweet gesture was met with screams of glee and hugs from his female classmates as each received her rose. This was such a complete surprise, senior Lily King said. It's kind of a great feeling. Peterson said he came up with the idea as a pick-me-up for students. Uh, He said students were still grieving the death last year of sophomore Kevin Romanowski, and Peterson thought the gesture would be a simple way to help raise spirits and make sure that none of the girls felt left out on Valentine's Day. King said Peterson's surprise was one of the sweetest things anyone could do. Her boyfriend lives more than three hours away, so she won't be able to see him to celebrate the romantic holiday, and this was a great way to feel included. It's just nice to know that somebody cares, fellow senior Vanessa Clark said. It's such a super sweet surprise. The gift set Zach back about $450 after he ordered the roses in bulk from Ecuador through Sam's Club. He said he liked giving out flowers and that the reaction on people's faces was awesome, especially after being very nervous before everyone started lining up. $450 to a high school senior. That is the world right there. Good for him. What a great way to serve others on Valentine's Day and to really just make all of these females day that much better. That's going to be it for the Matt Townsend Show today. When we come back, Dr. Matt will be rejoining us, unless he is having way too much fun in Vegas still. But uh, no, he'll be back tomorrow, which means I'll be back behind the board, which means no Sean O'Neill. Well, you know how Matt and Carrot Top are. Oh. They have a love-love relationship. Who doesn't love Carrot Top? Anyway, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for tuning in.